it appears to me he declined my <laughs> Kyle you declined my um co-host invite why bear with me a second guys bear with me a second He's trying to get in here. While he tries to get in here, um, I published a column today about how they... There we go. Deep state. <laughs> Don't you know it? I'm riled up. I'm super riled up today, Tracy. I, I, I don't blame you. You know what? I'm going to just shut up and give you the floor, and you can tell everybody what happened today. And in case people don't know who you are, just give a little background on what you know who you are and what you've done. No way. That's your job. Um, what happened was that you woke me up this morning uh, asking me to jump on your podcast. And I had been awake for about four minutes and I had just poured frosted mini wheats from my children and I had to throw on clothes and run out to my recording trailer where I sit. And, uh, and it was 40 degrees, but today has been a, a kind of a wild day. I finally undertook the emotional burden of reading the FBI's uh, what is it called? Investigative summary of the equal opportunity complaint that I lodged in December of 2021, which was to say that the FBI did a boilerplate and uh, discriminatory uh, dismissal of my religious accommodation request. And uh, when I read it, I found out a lot of things, um, but a lot of them were not new, but some of them were pretty, pretty shocking to me. The first thing I found out is that the FBI doesn't know my actual name and that my first name is not Kyle, but it's actually Bradley because there's a retard who um, started the first sentence of this like thousand page document with not the right name. Because that's the clown show that we're dealing with in the FBI at this point. Like we have people that cut and paste and make errors on criminal complaints for January 6th defendants. They say that they're both an FBI agent and a task force officer, which means that they're a local police officer at the same time, because they just can't do their own basic um, what proofreading. So anyway, my name is apparently Bradley Kyle Matthew Serafin, which is retarded. And uh, then I found out that my security clearance was permanently terminated or revoked uh, because of essentially I'm the FBI's Donald Trump, I guess. I was accused of racist, sexist, and or homophobic comments that made people uncomfortable. And that was between March 4th and April 18th, when I mostly sat in my cubicle and did paramedic training, and then also drove out in the middle of the desert by myself. So I'm not really sure who I made uncomfortable, but I'm pretty excited to learn about that. And obviously, I have some room to grow because I wasn't xenophobic or transphobic or any of the other ones. So I got some work I could do on that. Uh, for people who don't know me, I was an FBI agent for a little bit over six years. I was permanently suspended out of the Las Cruces field office after five years of working in Washington, D.C. I've won awards for a good performance. I uh, was the team leader for two and a half years of a covert surveillance team uh, of all senior FBI GS-13s, uh, 1310s, which is to say like people who are on the edge of retirement, um, 10 to, to 20 years and 25 years of experience. And I led them on a daily basis for over a thousand surveillance missions and then uh, went to to Las Cruces, New Mexico, in order to just step away from D.C., try to do Indian crimes, which is not considered a very high uh, priority inside the FBI, but it was something I felt that I was passionate about doing. And uh, I ran afoul of Joe Biden's COVID vaccine mandates under Executive Order 14043 because I'm a pro-life Catholic. And I said, no, thank you. Also, I'd already had COVID, so I was over it. 
And uh, that also led to me going to do some federal whistleblowing activity, which I had tried internally with some other stuff. But I exposed a uh, an email that has been fairly famous now because it showed that the FBI was investigating parents at school board meetings under an, uh, uh, an EDU official's threat tag, which is like a hashtag for tagging investigations. And then um, after that, I exposed a militia violent extremist pamphlet, which showed an Intel product where the FBI was basically targeting every symbol that all my friends that are veterans either have on their T-shirts, hanging up in their gyms on their wall, or are tattooed on their physical bodies. And uh, we did an election crime cheat sheet, which said that the FBI thought uh, information, misinformation and disinformation are actual crimes, which they aren't, because they let people who are not lawyers and who are not federal agents write Intel products for the field to use. Um, I've done a, a couple of interviews on Dan Bongino's podcast at this point. I have been um, doing whistleblower coordination of dozens of whistleblowers within the FBI and uh, working behind the scenes with Jim Jordan's people a little bit. And uh, what else? I don't know. I've been on Tracy Bean's podcast twice, pretty, pretty high level. And I got to meet, I got to meet Frank today. And what else? Kyle. Yeah. I'm I'm still permanently suspended. Kyle, I want (laughs) to ask you a question. At any point throughout your tenure in the FBI, did anybody ever tell you there were complaints about you, that you were a problem, that you caused a problem, that you made people uncomfortable or anything of that nature ever? Not that I can recall. Maybe. Who knows? If it was, it wasn't something. I mean, I had one guy tell me that uh, he didn't like the way that I I made fun of his instructor hat. And then he and I became best friends. So I don't know. Stuff like that. Like, you know, regular regular things where people get along. I I did have a a guy who was a team leader who um, was what we call a 25-year mistake in the FBI. That's a a guy that gets hired on and then you can't fire him because they're federal employees. They didn't learn the tricks that uh, they'd figured out to use on me. So they just let him subsist. He got into a fight with one of the dudes who interviewed Robert Hansen, which, which makes you kind of a famous person in the FBI. And uh, he got into a fight over him, uh, over whether or not they would wash cars, like, in their khaki pants. So that guy and I didn't get along. But did anyone ever tell me that I said something offensive? No. Can, I, not that I can ever remember. Can we look over to um, Steve Friend's timeline for a list of the OPR files? And look at what people get away with on a daily basis and don't face repercussion for and then compare it to your alleged transgression and come up with some sort of rationale for why they've done this. No, there's no rationale. I mean, we know why they did it, because I'm a problem, because I started speaking out at this point. But uh, what's incredible to me is that there was a a supervisor out of the Helena office in in Montana, which is to say that he offered answered to the Salt Lake City office, and he stalked his ex, uh, either ex-wife or ex-girlfriend, I'm not quite clear on, but he was a supervisor, which, and he had, you know, 10 or 15 years in experience. He got arrested for the stalking after she, she filed a, um, what do you call one of those things? A restraining order against him. He was arrested by state police. He was allowed to come into the office and keep his security clearance until he was actually convicted. But you wouldn't get um, the there, there are agents who have, So you're a bad news. Yeah, clearly, because I'm obviously like a filthy pureblood uh, Trump supporter or whatever it is that people want to call me. But uh, that that's the that's the FBI today. And as we talked about on your program a little bit, I just found out this week and I'm going to be writing a piece because I don't think anybody else can get into the detail of it. The FBI uh, has released an Intel product out of the Richmond field office stating that they are now interested in mitigating the threat of racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists who are going to infiltrate the radical traditional Catholic ideology. Uh, People who like the Latin mass are likely white supremacists 
And therefore, the FBI is going to recruit sources and tripwires and liaison in Virginia to stop these dirty white supremacists who are also Latin mass traditional Catholics. And where do this I can't. I can't wrap my head around. Where is this coming from? Do you have any idea where this is coming from? Or is this just their target du jour of the month? No, I think this is a this is a uh, attempt. So the two things, first of all, it comes from the Southern Poverty Law oh. Center. That's oh. the uh, that that's that's actually their source of information. And then let me read you some of the other sources, because it's a well-documented piece here that they wrote. Uh, Intel products are basically like term papers. So they put footnotes and addendums and things like that. Um, Southern Poverty Law Center, the radical traditional Catholicism is one of their pieces that was accessed on 12 uh, December of last year. They also cited a pretty important uh, and I would say nonpartisan website known as Salon.com, White Nationalists Get Religion. So that's a good article that you can read. That was also accessed last month. There's another one about traditional Catholics and white nationalists and how they're part of uh, Nick Fuentes' movement. Is yeah, that Nick Fuentes, Fuentes, yeah. Okay, so yeah, so, you know, Nick Fuentes is obviously recruiting a lot of Catholics that like the Latin Mass. That's also a Salon piece. And then um, the ever-popular and uh, ubiquitous Atlantic they wrote an article called How Extremist Gun Culture is Trying to Co-Opt the Rosary. That's an actual piece. That's a real thing that was written by Americans in this country. Um, I'm going to wrap a rosary around my AR-15, just letting people know. I'm putting one on the uh, buttstock now because that sounds cool. But, yeah, well, like we have, a, we have an FBI that is so radicalized and crazy that small fringes of it are able to get these things through and send them out in a way – that makes no sense to a rational person. It makes no re- sense to a regular agent, I'm sure. But unfortunately, um, there's enough lunatics that work there. This was not only written by an Intel analyst, which is to say somebody who probably was overeducated and underexperienced, but it was signed off on and reviewed by this, the chief division counsel of the Richmond field office, which is supposed to be the top lawyer that's supposed to be the balls and strike umpire, whether or not you can and can't write something and whether or not you can and can't open an investigation. So this person in Richmond sounds like a freaking radical. And uh, I don't know them by name. I just know that they approve this document, which is insanity. I, I, true. I, I this this coupled with everything else. How how do they use these these documents? Do they like go out now and st- is, is this so the media writes the article that's cover for them to write the document, which is then cover for them to target innocent Americans practicing their faith? Is that what the way it works? Say that again, because it sounds right. So. And then we, and by the way, we should also bring on, uh, we should bring on George Hill, who I see listening out there, because he's an expert in the Intel field. My, my experience with Intel people was mostly that I would ask them for something and then they would tell me they don't do that. And then you'd go, uh, oh, well, thanks for your help. And so they would say that they don't work cases. But um, essentially, you know, the, 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 the two spheres of intelligence versus um, operational casework they theoretically should align perfectly and they should all move toward the greater mission of making America safer. But in reality, um, the people who are writing Intel products are on their own wavelength. And unless they have someone that is a grounded, rooted, like American patriot, like my friend George up here, who just got on the speaker platform, if you don't have someone like that, who's, you know, keeping them in bounds, then maybe they write whatever their leftist professor taught them at some, you know, lunatic college. And I'll let him jump in. I'm heated up today, George. So how's it going, buddy? Um, well, thanks. So that's an intelligence bulletin, which is typically at the UFOUO level, as opposed to an intelligence note, which is usually at the secret level. Um, yep. Not usually, but almost always. Um, so the purpose of those intelligence bulletins are to give our law enforcement partners a 
kind of a heads up. This is what the FBI is paying attention to. So the, the intelligence bulletin in question uh, is part and parcel of the entire right wing domestic terrorist extremists are all over the country. And they're even manifesting themselves in the form of uh, radical tradi- uh, traditional Catholics. So it's all part and parcel to a narrative as opposed to an intelligence or an investigative effort. George, how do you feel about sourcing um, your your potential threats by using the Southern Poverty Law Center as a reference? Yeah, that's in violation. Well, at least when I left, it was that would have been in violation of the FBI uh, policy. Now, I do yeah, know um, firsthand um, where another intelligence bulletin was written and the when it was briefed to the SAC and the ASAC, so the special agent in charge and the assistant special agent in charge, um, the writer and their boss uh, referenced that uh, abortion clinic, anti-abortion clinic extremists um, have some of the following traits and they were listed. Um, I'll just name a couple of them as conservative Christian, pro-2A, not in favor of the LBGTQ agenda. Yeah. Every every American in 1970. (laughs) So, you know, to the ASAC's credit, to the SAC's credit, you know, because the FBI is not homogeneous. It's not one monolithic uh, organization, you know, group of people. I mean, there are good people within within the bureau and the SAC said, no, this is not happening. Take it out. You know, that, that is not an identifiable criteria. That's like saying that if, if they had written an intelligence bulletin saying that the Muslim community is not down with the LBGTQ agenda or not in favor of abortion on demand up until and including partial birth abortions, that never would have gotten out the door, but it's okay to get that bulletin out the door if they're Christians. This is unbelievable. What is there to stop this? I mean, it seems like it's just getting worse and worse and worse. What I said to Kyle was, it seems like it's this laundering operation always where the media will pick up a hint. Hey, the FBI or someone will say, hey, we need pieces on this specific subset of information. Write them. Then they'll write those pieces. Then the the FBI will turn around and use those pieces as the basis for whatever targeting they're going to be doing. And then the Southern Poverty Law Center hops in. I mean, they've I I was listed on their website for goodness sakes, and I'm a journalist. Um, this is a big problem, and it you know it's disconcerting to me. And nothing really shocks me anymore. What do you guys think about this? I, yeah, of course, that's what's going on right now. Like we've got a. We've got a weaponized DOJ. There's no question that there should be hearings about it. The problem is, is that the people that are supposed to be doing the hearings about it are not serious people. That's what we're finding out. And so that's the other thing that's got me heated up today. I found out that my buddy who was booked on a flight to go talk to Jim Jordan's committee uh, and was supposed to be speaking to them on Thursday. This is an unpaid, indefinitely suspended whistleblower with four little children living in a rental house. That cost twice what his mortgage was, but he had to sell his house because the FBI ordered him to sell it. And then they cancel his moving orders because they're because uh, they're like run by demons, I guess. And they decided that somebody with a two week old baby should be left without a home. And so they left him out there. They locked up all of his stuff, which we sent him um, from the Gibson Go that we have out there. I sent him 
uh, $10,000 so that he could rent trucks and pay for uh, his friends to go and drive all of his crap back to Wisconsin. So he went and did all that. So he's online to go talk to Jim Jordan's people on Thursday of this week, and they bumped him so that they could talk to Tulsi Gabbard. They talked to Chuck Grassley, uh, Ron Johnson, and they're bringing on uh, Nicole Parker, who was a recently resigned FBI agent out of the Miami field office, who in our little whistleblower group we refer to as uh, FBI Barbie, because she didn't do any whistleblowing. She just left, and she claims it was because the FBI was politicized. But from everything I can tell, it looks like she left the FBI because her friend was killed, which is a perfectly good reason. But she lined up her you know, gigs on Fox News, and then she walked away from the FBI, and she spent a whole day at Fox walking around in a pretty dress, and she didn't disclose anything, and she talks about the good men and women and how the FBI is so amazing. The FBI is trash right now, but not all of it. There's plenty of good people, but there's enough of it that's bad that it can't, like it just can't survive. Because it's tarnished the brand. Like, I sent you a picture of my badge, which had tarnish on it for a reason. Like, there's enough of it that's bad, and they can never do something bad without betraying the trust. And it's betrayed. Like, it's done. Uh, I don't know how you would ever salvage this after looking. They've made an enemy of 50% of this country at this point. Well, for what it's worth, I'm going to be testifying tomorrow beginning at 10 o'clock in front of Jim Jordan's committee um, and the uh, uh, Judiciary Oversight uh, committee of which Jerry Nadler is the minority lead. Um, my understanding, it's going to be all um, staffers. Um, oh, that's nonsense. You know. <laughs> are you serious? Exactly. Yeah. And are you paying your own way down there, George? Yeah, I am. Um, yeah. And I did a little digging into that. And what I found is, and, and you know what, you can throw the, anybody in this forum can throw the BS flag, obviously. But from what I've been able to find out that the reason I'm paying my own way is for example, say you have an expert witness on the stand and the defense says, well, were you paid for your testimony? Yes, I was. Well, there you have it. Just throw that testimony out. They're just here for the money. Um, that's if, if, if they think that they could say that about somebody who has no paycheck that's been indefinitely suspended by the FBI, um, I think that that person would go down as the villain. Yeah, but- it's pretty lame. And also it's- travel expenses are generally not considered to be real compensation because I can, I can assure you, my buddy Garrett does not have any interest in going and hanging out in D.C. That's probably the last place he wants to be. And it's probably the last place you want to be, honestly. Like, you'd probably be out there looking for more of those uh, those those flapping feathered fat friends you were shooting the other day. I'm, so. I'm still falling out from that. But, I mean, it's disgusting. Yeah, cool I mean, my, my attorney already gave me the heads up that, you know, they're going to be digging into the video that you and I did. And I'm like, really? That's That's what they're going to go after. And uh, so we rehearsed ways for me to avoid going down those rabbit holes and not do it in an ugly manner and still maintain an air of helpfulness and friendliness. Here's the thing, though. You and I uh, both understand what the capabilities are. We know that the FBI probably has people like I know security divisions watching all my podcasts, which is hilarious. And so when you know, like, I appreciate it if they would give me some five star reviews, we could we could use it. But what I do know is is that uh, you and I are speaking in an open and public forum, knowing that there are limits to what we can and cannot discuss and that our personal opinions are protected by the First Amendment because neither of us have any responsibility to the FBI at this point. So, you know, to think that they're going to pull something out of there that you wouldn't stand behind, like you said it in a space where literally thousands of people have seen it and anybody in the world has access to it if they want to. So neither of us are jeopardizing anything national security. And, and moreover, like the opinions we have, I'm pretty confident you'd stand by them. I know I'd stand by anything that I've said so far. Yeah. I mean, they're, it's, it's maddening. Um, and to Tracy's point, I mean, you know, I, I know it's not a rhetorical question, but it almost feels that way. You know, how do we stop this? But 
every chance they get, they meaning DOJ, FBI, they continue to take every opportunity to add to this narrative that our country is spinning out of control and being taken over by right wing extremists, that newest group being people who like to hear mass in I, Latin. I mean, it's just absurd. I I'm just I'm almost I'm almost speechless by by that that that's insane. You know, we released a column today um, at Uncover DC where we talked about how they've combined the whistleblower training with the insider threat training at the FBI and and what that means to people in the bureau. It's kind of like that silent wink and a nod. Hey, we know you know this is what you we know what's going on here. Um, it's it's and then today we find out that Kyle here is considered an insider threat. I. I it's what what are they do, do we yeah do we do we pin that tweet because that's 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 the funniest thing that i've read me, um the best it. thing is this so yeah if we could if i can find it I, i'm lazy about it so i'll just tell people kind of while tracy is looking in the background what i did is i went through this um investigative summary which was incredibly long and meticulous and foolish because the person who wrote it she sent me a she, they, what they do is they interview you and then they then some agent writes up what you said Instead of like saying, hey, you're a grown up. Why don't you just write what you said for me? And also you work for this agency. That would be really easy. So um, she wrote up my statement, which was like 17 or 18 pages long. And I corrected every single sentence, either for content or format or both, because it was atrociously written. And it was written like someone who was a fool and not like someone who speaks the way that I do and has the education level that I do. So I ended up going through and rewriting the entire science warn statement. And then I got everybody else's as well. And what I found out in theirs is that the assistant special agent in charge of my former field office, a guy named Eric Brown Jr., in case anyone's keeping score at home, uh, Eric Brown Jr. wrote several things that are hilarious. Number one, he wrote uh, hearsay evidence of hearsay. Um. So what he said was, is that an employee reported to him and he was reporting to the interviewer that I had been engaged in a confrontation with local law enforcement Um based on the, the body cam footage that I have provided on my Rumble channel for anybody to view. Anybody can go check it out. It's available and it's public. And, um, but the employee that had reported to him hadn't seen the body cam footage, but he did know that it was confrontational because it was confrontational because it needed to be for his report. So he actually reported that nonsense, which is borderline amazing to me. And then in another part of his statement, he said that I was considered – uh, an insider threat, and they reported me to the the office of the insider threat inside the FBI. That's traitors and spies for your for your scorekeeping. That's Robert Hansen. That's the insider threat. And then also they were concerned that I was very confrontational with my colleagues, which I assume meant that I wasn't going to get the vaccine and I wouldn't get a um, I wouldn't get a nasal swab, which was all true. And then because of those things, I was moved off a criminal squad and put on a national security squad where I would have access to more yeah. sensitive information as an insider threat because the people that are running the show but they never told you any of this on the way no of course not that's what's so amazing about it um i was told that i was being transferred i said this is a punitive move they wrote it very specifically it's not a punitive move well if it's not a punitive move then why are you moving me from the criminal which is supposed to be the lower tiered threat according to the fbi's own words to the most important thing when i don't want to work the most important thing and i'd already been read out of the clearance uh tracy I had been read out of my SCI read-ins, so I was not allowed to sit in a skiff by myself without someone holding my hand. Um, I no longer had what we call candy stripes on my badge, and I no longer had the SCI read-ins, which you have to basically just sign another NDA and, and uh, do financial disclosures every year. But I hadn't used those in over three years, so I said there's no reason for me to do it. I don't go to the skiff. And they moved me onto a squad where 
the work was done in the skiff and I couldn't go in it. So apparently I was, as we stated earlier, uh, racist, sexist, and homophobic in the six weeks that I was back at the uh, on this national security squad while I sat in a corner and talked to nobody. Can we talk about how they changed the the requirements now for clearances um, across the board and, and, and fill everyone in on that? Sure. Um, how specific? We, so the FBI has taken on the OPM uh, requirements or the OPM suggestion uh, under ODNI, I believe, that said that they were going to move to a thing called continuous vetting. So historically speaking, the FBI would do clearances in a way that um, you would uh, get reinvestigated every five years uh, in theory, but not in reality. They would just say that it was going to be every five years. Uh, but they would try to do this sort of five-year reinvestigation. They would go back and check all your references. They would uh, you know, check all your finances and so on. And then they would clear you for another five. In reality, sometimes it was as long as eight, 12. It sometimes took as long as 20 years because the FBI is a government agency and it's not very efficient. It doesn't do its job well at doing those things. So they've moved into this new technique that's called continuous vetting, which means they can do a background investigation at all times for any reason and no reason. And it's my belief that some of this is going to be done to vet conservatives and pull them off because they've got a great hit list already of people that refuse the vaccine. And those people who refuse the vaccine and were causing a problem, they've already shown that they're not willing to go along and get along. They've already shown that they have some spine and those people are a problem. And so when you have those problems, they've already been readily identified. There's about 3,200 in the FBI at this point, and you can easily get rid of them through continuous vetting. And then you get a guy like Marcus Allen, who I don't know. I've never met. I only read his case on Judicial Watch, but he was removed from the FBI for holding, quote unquote, conspiratorial views, which included that there might have been some election fraud in 2020. And um, what else? That uh, Antifa is not an idea. It's a group of people. Things like that. So they can come after you for any reason once they start continuously vetting you. And then they can go after any number of the um, the five or six standards for a security clearance. They can do um, different types of, you know, behavioral, financial, um, personality type issues. And George may know some of the other ones on there, but they're like basically alpha alpha through echo uh, guidance criteria for either adjudicating or removing a security clearance. Which is insane when when, you know, we've had. Who there were there was a number of people wandering around with security clearances that shouldn't have them. Um, well, how about the fifty-one guys that didn't know what the hell they were talking about when they were discussing Russian information with Hunter's laptop? But moreover, how about the uh, the former, <laughs> the chief, uh, you know, the chief intel guy, the the uh, SAC of counterintelligence at the New York field office, Charles McGonigal, who was taking bags of cash from probably a Russian oligarch, uh, handed over by a retired Albanian. Um, Intel officer, like maybe that guy should have had his security pulling, you know, checked out. But instead, they're going to go after like filthy Trump supporters who don't want to get the class. Unbelievable. That's some real. That's some real OG tradecraft, there, buddy. Give me a bag <laughs> full of cash. The bag full of cash. The greasy. The greasy McDonald's bag full of cash is a, is an epic winner. And then the best thing is if you do get it found out by your girlfriend who uh, your wife doesn't know about, then you always tell her it's what you won gambling on a baseball game, which tells me that you've never gambled on sports in New York, I'm guessing. Because who the hell's gambling and taking home $225,000 in cash? cash Yeah, like, get the hell Um, out of here. Barry has her hand up. I want to let her ask her question. Send it. Hey, thanks, Tracy. Hi, everyone. Yeah, my question is regarding to when uh, President Trump put that amazing, brilliant executive order regarding Schedule F that would have you know, kind of reversed that 1978 Civil Service Act that makes it impossible to fire these unelected officials and people that he wanted to get rid of to drain the swamp. 
And I know Biden reversed that like within hours of his inauguration and people were freaking out, calling him racist and sexist and all this stuff when he wrote that. But my question is, what was the vibe in the bureau like when that happened? I'm just curious about what some of these institutions were saying and thinking when that happened. And and hopefully, you know, hopefully we can get him in office again because he's vowed to make that law. Yeah, so Schedule F would have been a great option to be able to remove some of these people that are otherwise unremovable, I think, in a lot of ways. But I don't remember hearing anything about it at the time. In fact, it was news to me. I found out after I left the FBI, maybe George heard something about people being upset about it. But um, I'm not like I feel like so many people in the Bureau, they don't even know the stuff that's like mainstream news. Like they're like in a couple of weeks, they're going to find out that there was a Chinese spy balloon. Uh, there's a, like probably 60 percent of the FBI agents will figure that out, like that somebody shot down a balloon because their friends will you know, show them a picture on Facebook. So, so many people keep their heads down and know nothing. I'm not hundred percent confident that people are that aware. Maybe the senior executives knew, but I, I didn't deal with them nearly as much. Yeah. I mean, there was almost no buzz about that at all. And I can attribute it to, to what Kyle said is that most people uh, go through each day in a semi stupor. Um, and then the others are rather arrogant and say, yeah, it doesn't matter what Trump does. We're going to do what we need to do. They're doing that on the Biden administration. Because that, that put like 50,000, you know, bureaucrats who just had seniority that Trump couldn't fire, it put them at risk. So thanks for answering the question. Yeah, it was pretty much everything I read about it at the time was just filled with hate. Yeah. So what's amazing is that Trump has some really great ideas coming out right now. And I, I think that uh, you got to give credit where it's due. I'm not like uh, a Trump, no matter what kind of guy by any means, but uh, the schedule F appointment is a really big deal. Try to reflect that's one of the major pieces to getting rid of, um, you know, the sort of the administrative state that exists there and is, and is not beholden to anybody and operates on its own accord. And then the second thing he talked about was the digital bill of rights, which I think would be a big step forward. You know, we have to remember, too, it. I don't want a president that's also a king. And I think that we should be really, really clear as uh, people, you know, that want to live in an American constitutional republic that we don't elect a king. They don't have the ability to go and do kingly things and rule by decree. Uh, it should still be the consent of the governed, which means that the representatives have to pass it. Um, honestly, if the government didn't do anything for a really long time, that would be just fine with me. If they just stayed out of our lives, I'd be happy as hell. But um, I don't see that going on. So if he's going to be able to push those and he's going to get, you know, as a leader of a party, he's going to go and move those things forward. I think that'd be fantastic. There are some protections that are required in this day and age that um, that are pretty important um, that have been overlooked for a number of years. I think Congress has shirked their duty. And I guess it falls on the, the executive at this point to propose good ideas as they come in and, and maybe move a sweeping slate of legislation across that would that would really protect people from all the institutions that have now weaponized against them, which is big tech and it's big pharma and it's uh, big business on every level. And there's so many of these other pieces where, you know, I think a lot of people have been asleep at the wheel, but so many people are paying attention now. So one of the things that we have to make sure that we do is keep this out in the forefront, because I'll be honest, this committee is not starting off the best for me. It's really not. Um, you know, the first two witnesses you guys told me about today, I was like, what in the ever living hell are they doing that is like basically like media fodder to get them to have some interviews that are of no substance whatsoever so that they can like say oh look who we interviewed at our committee it's stupid and having staffers do these interviews is you know what it could be good or bad depending on how good their staffers are because a lot of the time the staffer knows more than the actual um than the actual congress person does so 
No, that's so it, true. It is. And, it, you know, it just depends on how capable these folks are. They may be very capable um, and they may ask great questions. And they also may be completely, inca- you know, incapable of asking good questions, in which case it's now going to fall on your shoulders to get stuff onto the record somehow that you want out there without being asked about it. Good luck. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, uh, it could go either way. I, I am not very positive on it right now only because you know what you gotta, you gotta pay people or like they could do a fundraiser for it or they could have somebody like, it's very easy for the number of congressmen with the notoriety that they have to help this person get funded. So he's not paying for his freaking travel out you of know, his pocket. And he's literally doing it because he loves this country and he believes that his oath requires it of him and that his Christian faith requires it of him to go and speak the truth. Like, that's the reason why my buddy is going. It's the reason why we threw money at him and, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't feel good about it. And it's like, whatever, dude, I'm sending you money because I'm not going to have you take it out of your kids' mouths. Um, we're going to take it from the donations that people have done. And there's been a lot of very generous people who have donated I'm, to us. I'm paying and that. I'm super grateful about it, but. I'm pitting What's the that? fundraiser right now at the top of this. Yeah, you know, here's the thing. It, it feels really gross to ask about money because I don't want to ask for money, but I want to make sure that, like, I can look after my buddy because I, I don't know anybody else that's going to do it. His face is not public. I have a profile that's, like, that's public enough that I'll take the hits on it. I'll take my uh, my POS former supervisor calling me a give, send, go machine or whatever the hell it is. Like, if he wants to trade my Twitter account for his pension, I'll do it tomorrow. We, he can have it. He can send all of his crappy articles out. Um, I had a, for those who don't know, I have a supervisor who basically hid from doing a job for the last, eh, let's say 10 years in the FBI, basically did nothing, was removed for some of his incompetence by the inspection division when every single person on the squad voted no confidence against him, except me, which he probably doesn't know, but I never had any beef with the guy. And then he, um, he got pretty pissy and started writing hit pieces on me. And he's written at least three hit pieces on me in town hall of all places. And so he's writing all these crappy articles about, you know, that I'm a clown and whatever else. And it's like, you know, talk about an unserious guy. I'm pretty confident he had an inner office affair, which ruined a marriage. He definitely told me that he wasn't getting the vaccine and he was going to hide so that nobody bothered him. And he basically retired as a supervisor because they moved him from a supervisor job where he ran 16 people to a supervisor job where he didn't know anything about planes. And he just hid out in the background and uh, he just let them, uh, he just let them do whatever the pilots do. He just didn't do anything. For like two years, and then he retired with his pension, and now he's an elder statesman. We're bringing Steve up on the uh, on the uh, very good, or whatever very good. The diet. Oh, there's hands up. I I don't need to keep yelling. I'm I'm amped up, and I'm like two cups of coffee deep, like late in the afternoon. So let's okay, roll. so let's. Uh... <laughs> I like when you yell, Kyle. You get your points across. I like Man, it. I'm so hot right now. Like no, like there's nothing. I've been waiting for them to get rid of my security clearance for, you know, since June of last year. I've been waiting for them to affirm their own proposal, and uh, they never interviewed me about it. They sent me another investigation saying they were investigating me for for being um, hostile to the inspection division because I wrote them an email and said, look, I'm happy to be interviewed, but I'm going to bring a member of Congress with me. And they ghosted me. They ghosted me like three months ago. So these people are cowards. Like they're used to being the dumbest people in the room, but they have the most power. And when they deal with people that are smarter than them, which is pretty much almost every day that someone goes in that's an actual FBI agent, they're they're fully intimidated. They, they yelled at Steve Friend. Steve can tell you about his OPR interview, which was ridiculous. Um, they told him that he couldn't have a job. So, like, these are just clowns. And, uh, yeah, I'm just sick of it. I'm ready to just go full bore. <laughs> so, Kyle, um, for everybody here in the audience, I'm sure you know it, but it's 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 kind of worth a chuckle and worth repeating. Um, big cases, big problems. Little cases, little problems. No cases, no problems. So there's Nance. That's exactly it. 
if people didn't hear that, it's literally how much work you do depends how much uh, how much struggle you're going to have in the FBI and the people who do nothing. They're like when I talk about those 25 year mistakes, which I mentioned earlier, it's very easy to step into the bureau, make it through probation as long as you have a supervisor that doesn't want to fire you, like mine did, because she uh, she told me that she didn't like my beard, which is hilarious, and I told her I had a sincerely held belief that I had to have it. Uh, actually, let's get into I, that. I for was going to say, can you please tell the story now? It's time. It's so good. So uh, I had a boss who was my age. Um, she was a very dim bulb. And she came from Dallas like I did. We were the same age. She joined the FBI when she was like 24 and a half, 25 years old. She had never worked another real job. And she had worked at the FBI. And I joined at 35. And she had spent two and a half years working cases, which is basically enough to like, in her case, not even understand what was going on. And then she went to headquarters for six years, which means she's totally useless and has done nothing of value. And then she stepped out into the field because she needed to check a box. And she is now the section chief of uh, counterterrorism down in the Redstone Arsenal facility in, uh, in Alabama. So this woman came to me and pulled me into her office and said, Kyle, she would always say that she had a problem, that executive management had a problem when it was actually her problem. And she said, Kyle, executive management really doesn't like your beard, so you're going to have to shave it. Mind you, the FBI has not have a grooming or a dress and appearance standard since 2010. So there was no standard in 2016 or 2017 when this happened. And I said, well, Aubrey, um, I appreciate that, but uh, I have a very sincerely held belief that I have to have this beard. And uh, so I'm not going to shave it, but let me know if you need me to go like swear out an affidavit up at uh, HR and I'd be more than happy to put it in writing. I'd really hate for you to get in trouble because I'm growing a beard. And um, so she was like, oh, you would say that. And I was like, I am saying that. And so, you know, let me know if you want an affidavit or something, but that's not going to happen. And so then I left and my guys were listening in the hallway because we would always like listen in the hallway to what was going on in the office. Um, and they go, did you just tell the boss that you have a uh, like a religious belief about your beard? And I was like, yeah, I've never had a beard before. And my wife like, you know, totally worships me with it. So I'm going to keep my beard and uh, it's religious as it needs to be. Like that's as good a sincerely held belief that honestly qualifies under uh, Title Seven protections if my wife worships me and that's part of my religion. And who is she to say otherwise? So anyway, I kept my beard. I still have my beard. One of my guys that was on my first squad told me we grow the beards because it's the FU to management. They can't make you stop. You're not so, on the the, the Yankees has a code, but the FBI does not. Um, I have another question for you. Are you a male or a female? Can you please clarify for the audience? Well, I'm not uh, working for the FBI. So uh, as a gender fluid former special agent, um, I identify as male on this call. But I will tell you. Um, that my SF-50, which is my federal form, standard form 50, stating my federal service shows that I am a female because I told my boss that I always felt like kind of a bitch when I was working for the FBI, and uh, I updated my gender to match. And uh, I was rated as the almost one of the top female physical performers in 2021 on this the PT test. This is not a joke. For a, for a 39-year-old female. No, I have the documents to back this up. So they actually fired uh, a trans... Well, what do you call it? A gender fluid. Sorry, I don't like to say trans because I feel very uncomfortable with that term. But uh, as a gender fluid individual, I've always identified as like a male and a father when I get home, but but not when I was at work. So, yeah, that's on that's on documentation. Maybe we'll deal with that with the EEO commission later. Okay. <laughs> Look, it's objective, and that's how I feel. So I started saying that early on at, um, at Washington Field in my first PT test. They would say, how many sit-ups do you need to do? And I go, I don't know. And they would go, you know, 38. And I go, I identify as female. And they would go, they go, shut the fuck up and do your, do your sit-ups. And I would just say, I'm going to suit you. I'm going to suit you as I would do like 65 because the FBI is a clown show. Um, the farm, you have your hand up. Please ask. 
Sorry. I, I, yeah. Farm, you got to go, man. Your hand's been up forever. No, it's all good. Um, I have, I have two questions. One is, do you think that just from your experience that the, um, going after, you know, vax or injection refuse nicks is just going to amp up in the FBI and they'll just get rid of people kind of retroactively that didn't keep up to date in the future. And then the other one is, um, given that you, I guess, are you going to, are you going to change all of your, you know, your passport documents to your represent your gender? Uh, well, as a fluid individual, I think that both represent me depending on where I am. So there's no real reason to update that. Um, but what I will say is that regarding the Refusenik situation, not only do I think it will amp up, but I think it actually has amped up and they are going to start including boosters in it, even though that is uh, under injunction. They have determined uh, that the pilots that fly around in the private jet that Chris Ray has been abusing are now required to be uh, boosted and up to date on the, um, the Pfizer uh, profit mogul. And the, uh, the, the fact is, is that it's been shared to us by several nurses that the critical incident response group, which owns the hostage rescue team, they have the, um, the tactical pilot unit, the tactical helicopter unit, THU, and they've also got the, uh, the private pilots that fly the, the jets. Those guys are now required to, under things that are not related to the EEO, I'm sorry, the, the executive order, 14043, it's not related to that. It's related to their health and safety standards for some OSHA nonsense and the lead, the lead um, doctors for the FBI, the chief medical officer and the uh, chief flight officer there have determined that all those pilots have to go get the jab. So I don't know, maybe Chris Ray will be falling, falling out of the sky at some point in the near future. I, I really hope not because the pilots are really nice people. I've loved all the pilots I worked with. They were super good dudes and a couple of good women. And uh, I, in fact, even um, uh, shipwreck crew's wife was a pilot on one of the, the, uh, the details there doing stuff and just wonderful human beings. Like they were, Super helpful, good good people to hang out with. I don't wish any ill on them, and yet they're forcing something on them that they haven't chosen on their own. And I would say it's in um, it is in violation of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals injunction, which hopefully will be decided any day that the uh, that the EEO was actually that the EO rather was um, was actually unconstitutional. We'll see that shortly. We I have um, Steve here, and I want him to tell everybody what happened with his employment opportunity, and also he has a book, and I want him to tell people about that. Steve. Sure. Thank you. Um, so I, uh, uh, well, w when you get walked out, they give you paperwork in order to obtain outside employment, because as Kyle can tell you, we're still technically employees of the FBI. We're unpaid. We can't identify as uh, special agents. We're just FBI employees. So they give you this paperwork and they say, if you want to uh, seek outside employment, uh, you have to get our approval because there could be a conflict of interest. It could be an ethical concern. So, uh, I uh, was offered a position to work for a Center for Renewing America, which is a 501c3, and they offered me a fellowship to advise the uh, legislative and uh, any, legislative and, and any sort of policy directives that they were going to be suggesting towards this new uh, weaponization of the federal government subcommittee uh, in, in capacity of the FBI. So uh, I had kind of a pretty good outlook on that, a pretty good experience on it. So it kind of fit my, my resume. Um, I submitted the paperwork the, uh, and I said, this is exigent. I would like a uh, quick turnaround time. And uh, I was told it was going to take 30 days. So I submitted that on a Friday and I heard back on the following Monday morning. So uh, not even one full business day that uh, my request was rejected. 
And uh, I was told originally that it is a uh, it is a decision that is jointly done between the uh, Office of Integrity and Compliance Attorneys and uh, Human Resources Division. But uh, in the email that I received back, they said that my executive management, meaning my special agent in charge, Sherry Onks, um, had decided that uh, I, I could not have that position. So they're not even following the policy to properly reject me. Um, and uh, and also, as a side note to that, I was told in just doing research about gaining outside employment, they said that I am limited to earning $7,500 a year. Uh, that there would be some sort of uh, bureaucratic there. I'm sure there's some sort of bureaucratic uh, red tape in order to request more than that. When you can say like, hey, like uh, I'm not just somebody who wants to get a side hustle and you know I'm currently unpaid. But then I was also told that I would need to apply from inside an FBI facility and I would need to be escorted right. in order to do that. So there's just no consistency. There's nobody's ever handling this before because nobody requests outside employment because nobody gets suspended. And but, if you do, then you just you know expect it to resign. That's actually not 100% true, Steve. People request it and get it all the time as long as they're in the favor of the regime. Um, there's a lot of tactical instructors that get options to go out and teach tactical courses and get paid for it. They can get paid very well. And during 2020, the FBI actually waived the entire um, the limit. It used to be $3,500 total. It was like 3000 or 3500 for agents that you could earn all year, no matter how much work you did. Um, so if they paid you five bucks an hour, if they paid you 500 bucks an hour, it didn't matter. You could only earn that much money. But um, they actually waived that entire total during the, the COVID shutdowns because they had put people out of work. Not that they didn't pay them, mind you. They just didn't have them come into work. So they had people go and teach training courses and do other fun stuff. So a lot of people took advantage of that. Um, you can get outside employment opportunities to write books and make a fortune if you want, if somebody wants to buy your book. There's all kinds of things that people will do, but you got to be friends with the people that make the approvals. And you and I are not friends with those people because those people are- And that makes sense. I mean, I, I had two agents in my uh, prior office who, who had put in for outside employment. One was accepted, one was rejected. And uh, the one who was accepted asked to be a high school baseball coach. And uh, he had connections back at WFO, Washington Field Office. And uh, the one who was rejected, she was a certified coroner and she wanted to just keep her certification hours up in order to like maintain her license. And they rejected her going and doing, uh, you know, body, <laughs> doing bodies for funerals. That's right. What's wild is, is that um, the FBI has a hostage rescue team. Many people will know this is like the tier one, you know, counterterrorism team for the United States. And they have their own medical unit who are actually really, really competent people. And I had great experience working with them. The thing that blew my mind is they had a physician's assistant that worked for them who was an agent, who was a, a you know, big strapping dude. And he wanted to maintain his medical certifications as a, as a physician's assistant in the emergency room. And they would not approve him doing rounds and doing hours in the hospital to maintain ER PA status while he was actually acting in that capacity for a tactical team that theoretically could either have a guy shot on their team or could have, you know, a subject shot. And Steve, we can hear your kiddos. They're going to join, join the party too. But uh, that's, that's just how, um, how foolish the FBI is when it comes to these things. It's totally arbitrary. They have no problem, you know, squashing Steve who hasn't gotten paid in months. He's, you know, in, uh, you know, 130 something days or, um, you know, they obviously are not going to approve him writing a book. But in the meantime, they're going to approve a guy who's getting paid $172,000 a year at the income cap. And he wants to go make a couple hundred dollars on a weekend doing a tactical course, shooting up cars, which is what I knew people got approved for. 
Yeah, and I'm, and you know, there's a whole other process for pre-publication review for your book uh, if you want to do it. And I don't imagine a lot of people are writing books um, that want to keep their pension, so I don't. I just don't think a lot of people write books. So I submitted that uh, to the FBI. Um, I, I did it. As, I said as a courtesy. I'm not submitting this for your approval. I just want you to know this is coming out. Um, and uh, they immediately responded back. I'm talking about like within one business day with uh, some follow-up questions. And they asked me what my name is and uh, what my uh, what my title is and and give me a summary of of the book. So I said uh, everything that you're asking me is actually included in the PDF manuscript, so you can read it and uh, have your answers. And uh, again, like I'm not asking for your approval and uh, they acknowledge receipt of my, my comments. And I, I, I imagine they're actually looking at it right now because they, they responded pretty quickly. But uh, like I told my publisher, um, I, I don't care what they say. Um, I didn't disclose any classified materials. No sources and methods were compromised. It's just uh, the details of my whistleblower complaint and a little bit more detail and how it impacted my life. And, uh, and then just, you know, some background information on me. So I, uh, I'm proud of it. Uh, that's the, what's what happens when you, uh, you know, leave me home idle with nothing to do for 140 days. Uh, you're a brilliant writer. <laughs> you, I, I, you're brilliant. I have published several of your columns now and you're a brilliant writer. And what's the name of your book and where can people go pre-order? Uh, it's called true blue, my journey from beat cop to FBI whistleblower. And, uh, it is now available on Amazon, uh, Simon and Schuster, Barnes and Noble have it. Uh, Miranda Devine is writing the, uh, the the prologue, and Terry Turchi, retired uh, assistant d- director, is doing the uh, the introduction. So, uh, awesome. yeah, it is going to be on presale now. Uh, actually, published in July. Fantastic! Looking Thank forward you. to that. Yeah, that's great. I love that you guys are actually pushing back, and you're so vocal and public about it. Because most of the time, the American public doesn't get to see this. And I think the fact that they do get to see it is so beneficial and will go down in the history books because this doesn't usually happen. For years, I was like, where are all of our whistleblowers? Where the hell are they? And now we can see why so few people have the guts and the balls to step forward and be a whistleblower because your life is, is they basically try to destroy you. They try to destroy your life. And a lot of people go crazy because of it. And then they're just not taken as seriously anymore. But you guys are holding strong like I've never seen. So... Fantastic. Tracy told me that I was supposed to be crazy today, but, um, you know, you get mad when you get this stuff and then you got to just settle down and then figure out what the next step is and move forward. And the space is one of them. Um, we just brought up, uh, uh, ship shipwreck crew. I don't know if you wanted to jump in and if you had something in particular you wanted to say, I saw you on there and we can go to Mitt in a second too. Um, I'm trying to digest my, my caffeine and move my load to like stable instead of just like fury right now. <laughs> I, I just want to say you and Steve are troublemakers. That's 100% correct. <laughs> you know, I've full, never full heard truth. your voice before, Ship. Never. We never had a phone conversation in that time I was writing for you? No, email? sir. No, sir. We have not. Well, you haven't been spending any time in courtrooms in Washington, D.C. because I've been nope. making a lot of noise in courtrooms. No, I've not, I've not gone to D.C. Um, and I'm, I'm all the, the, the better for it. I don't know. Kyle, have we spoken on the phone? We've had a lot of emails. Uh, we spoke on the phone briefly. It wasn't a long call, but uh, oh, that's yeah, right, that's right, that's right. Okay. Back and forth, yes, sir. Steve, so, I've not met you yet, so nice to make your acquaintance. So, Ship, I'm going to ask you a question because this is something that I always had a little qualm with you about during our time before the 2020 election. 
do you still believe that the FBI is a great organization with, with, with wonderful people working at it? Well, I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you this. I, I, I will say this, um, and I'd, I'd ask Steve and Kyle to give me their view. Now, I don't know how much Steve knows about me. Kyle knows my background. But I joined DOJ in 92, became a criminal at USA in 94, and I left in 2013. So I started right at the tail end of the first Bush Bush senior, eight years of Clinton, eight years of Bush, and four years, four and a half years of Obama. And the thing about the Bureau that, that, that Kyle and Steve both know, but which you know, is kind of not really well known to the outside world is that because of the 50, age 50 retirement opportunity, the Bureau's personnel turns over 100% every 25 years. So right now there's probably, well, I know for a fact, there's nobody left in the Bureau now that joined the Bureau in the 90s or, or say the early 90s when I joined DOJ, they're all gone. And And what has happened particularly in the last 12 years, in my view, based on what I saw while I was in, what I, what I saw happening, you know, from 2007 to 2010, 2012, and what I've now seen progress even more remarkably now that I'm having regular contact with, with Bureau agents again, is the entire culture of the Bureau changed as the recruiting and personnel change. In the 90s, the bureau, the, the new bureau classes coming in, a lot of state and local law enforcement, a lot of military. As, as Clinton was, uh, was downsizing the military after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had a lot of junior officers, lieutenants and captains coming out of the Army, coming out of, out of the Air Force, going into the FBI. That all stopped in about 2000. It stopped after Obama was elected. And, and recruiting shifted almost entirely to college campuses. And so, I mean, if you want to know, if you want to know what the Bureau's personnel, agent, workforce looks like now, think about what you've seen in college campuses the last 10 years, because that's where they're coming from. You, you, you don't have, you know, accountants and, and finance and, and uh, you, you know, uh, uh, pre-law um, uh, college graduates, you have, you know, gender studies and, and, and all kinds of, you know, social science degree holders who now populate the Bureau. And what happens, and I saw this firsthand, and, and I think Kyle and Steve are suffering from it, is the way I've had this conversation with, I can't tell you how many people, but maybe not on air, the way the Bureau promotes, it's, it's almost 100% volunteerism. And what I saw and I called out, and I've said this publicly on Twitter before, is the, the volunteerism that creates management means that, in large measure, the worst agents go into management because they're crappy agents. And management yeah. is their alternative. So, Shiv, um, have... th- there was a, a, a thing spoken just before you got up here that, uh, that George Hill said, and I'm going to have him speak back to you because – I think you guys have some things in common, but he mentioned the, the old uh, the old maxim, which was uh, you know big cases, big problems; little cases, little problems; no cases, no problems. And when you're a, a supervisor, you have no cases. You're just looking at the squad. Um, shameless plug here: if you if folks have not listened to our podcast, the Kyle Serafin Show podcast, which is syndicated by Uncovered DC, wonderfully enough by Tracy, um, I did a two and a half hour discussion with a guy who walked out at 13 years 
who saw no opportunity to change anything in the FBI. Uh, his name is uh, Chris Gonzalez. He was on Dan Bongino's podcast on Friday. And we talk about this long form, and you're exactly correct. The self-selectors that decide that they want to go in are not interested in trying to make things better. There's only a marginal increase in salary, so there's very little monetary upgrade to it. But what you get is people that just want to promote to the next level up because they either want the authority or they want to avoid having to do casework, which is an option. And if they can get up to the next level, you know, they might be able to move their families and most of them end up, you know, bouncing all over the country. And they have very different values than the people that want to just put their head down and do casework, which is what used to be what uh, FBI, you know, aspired to be, to be a great case agent was the aspiration. And um, those people are not even looked very highly on anymore. And, and Chip, I don't think you've met, but senior chief, you'll see below you on the, on the panel, um, that's George Hill, who is a uh, retired SIA and uh, probably has some some overlap as far as uh, DOJ time. Uh, he was uh, he retired from uh, the Boston field office, but he had his hand up and I'm guessing he has a response to what you had to say, too. Yeah, let, yes. me, let me finish. Let me finish that. that the one thought I yes, have just just real quick. So so they're developed and I'll give you the, the prime, the, 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 the number one example of it. They're developed and you guys know this. A, a, a mentality among incoming agents that within like three or four years of actually coming in, they were, they, they had their eye on that management track. It had already been explained to them by somebody, you know, get your minimum time in, you know, head for, go to headquarters, get your 18 months or two years in headquarters, and then get your first squad agent, uh, a super, or your, your squad supervisor. And then, and then it's, and then it's up the ladder. It's like, two to three years and a move every time. And when you land in a supervisor squat, you're automatically thinking about the next one you're going to apply for. That's where big cases, big problems, little cases, little problems, and no cases, no problems comes from because the supervisor doesn't want problems in his squad that will impede his next move. Yep, and, that's and, all. And, that's and, all and, and, and Andy McCabe, and I know people that worked with Andy McCabe at pretty much every level. Andy McCabe is the epitome of this mentality. He never accomplished anything at any stop along the way. He was never respected by his peers. He was never particularly good at anything he did. He just had a mentor who pulled him up the chain and he didn't. He made sure he had no problems in his in, in the area of his responsibility, so that he could cleanly move to the next level. Do you know who his mentor was? Yes, but can I'm you share? Gonna, it now? Okay. No, no, I'm not going. George, George, didn't you tell me about the any Andy rule? Yeah, any Andy. Yeah, three new S, three newly minted SAs checked into the New York field office, and. Um, they were so interchangeable. The common refrain was any Andy will do. <laughs> well, my claim to fame after two years as a two years as an AUSA is I had a particularly high profile investigation going on. And, and, and it turned out that a newspaper article was, was put on basically exposed the existence of the investigation which was secret at that point and the targets all you know all fled and and it turned out that the that the ra had spoken to the reporter and and i didn't know that but i but but there was a um a, a conference call with like six agents in a conference room with the with the um with the uh the rack 
and and myself and my supervisor on the phone and I said whose boneheaded idea was it to talk to the press and I didn't know but it was Iraq's idea their entire room broke out laughing because they, none of them liked the guy they all just thought he was an idiot and I, I had like two years as an AUSA at that point but it was it was explained to me not long after that the nature of the volunteerism I couldn't believe it I had no idea that essentially first level management was just raise your hand and you can go. We'll send you to Washington and you can become a manager of the FBI and you will then supervise, you know, agents with 20 years experience who know what they're doing, handling cases. You'll get to supervise them, even though you don't have a frigging clue what you're doing. That, that makes me feel so great about what's going on out there. <laughs> so Tracy, when I used to do my, um, when I used to do my, what do you call them? Uh, file reviews, which you do every 90 days. Uh, you might do them every 60 days as a new agent, if my memory serves. Uh, but there's a time that you do them like a little bit faster as a probationary agent. And so I would go in, and in theory, your boss's job is to read every single thing that you attribute to your case file, proofread it, uh, make sure that it doesn't sound stupid, that you're actually making a point, that you're adding value to the case, and then they approve it based on their expert experience because they're the supervisory special agent. So I'm working Chinese uh, counterintelligence, and I would write all these things to these BS cases that I had, and they weren't super intense by any means. And she would send them back for stylistic points. She'd be like, you can't put the word that. She didn't like the word that because of some style guy that she had in her head. So I would always have to rewrite things about the word that, which used to piss me off. So then I'd send it back to her. And every 60 days, I'd go in and sit down. And she would go, okay, now tell me about your cases. This is a person who literally approved every single thing that I did every day that I did it. And she didn't know anything that I did because she didn't pay attention to any of it because she was useless. And she promoted her useless way all the way up. She was the uh, the assistant special agent in charge of the criminal division in uh, Minneapolis while they had the riots out there. So this is the lady that was theoretically running the federal response to sort of the summer of love stuff that happened in 2020. You know, these are the kind of people that move up. They are all, she was spending basically all of her time trying to talk to people at headquarters, finding her next gig. She did almost no work on our squad. And so she phoned it in the whole way. And, and that's how you get these people that they, they're experts in nothing. And they're happy to promote. I know she never worked counterterrorism, but she was in charge of the she's in charge of a counterterrorism section. Why? Why should she be telling anybody what to do? But that's the FBI way at this point. You raise your hand. You tell them you're willing to move. She keeps a uh, a house that she owns in uh, Alexandria, so she's always close to DC. So she can always come back and get that SAC or that ADIC job. And you know she'll go and take the 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 rental move and. She'll go live in an apartment for a couple months or 18 months, whatever it is, and she'll TDY back. This is what people don't realize. They'll take a job in D.C. They'll get a, um, an 18-month gig that they know they're going to have to go work, so they get a permanent move down to another station somewhere. It doesn't matter. It, doesn't have to, it could be Minnesota. It could be Alabama, whatever. Uh, but they keep their house in D.C., so they're down there for 18 months, and then while they're down there, in the middle of that 18 months that they're serving, they'll TDY back to D.C. to their own house, and they'll work a temporary gig working in some other you know, crappy part of headquarters. Then they'll go and finish the 18 months, and then they'll be back at headquarters again for another job. And so these people literally never leave the D.C. orbit. And uh, that's why one of Trump's ideas has to be that you've got to move some of these federal agencies outside into America, where real people live, and outside of that beltway mentality, which is just disgusting. And, the, and they, they've automated the uh, promotion, uh, you know, back, back to, you know, how quickly these people promote. Because I think it's called the LDP, the Leadership Development Program. And it's all like virtual. So you just check the box. Literally, you, you, you have to go through this list and check all these boxes. And then that's not correct. And then one. That's that's not correct. I went through that process. That's not they, correct. They just changed it recently in the last like two years. I went through it a, a little bit less than a year ago or okay, a little bit enough. more than a year ago. 
So I was doing a bunch of those things that were virtual academy to get into the uh, like the supervisory uh, acting roles, and it was all virtual academy crap. That's, like, yeah, that's what experience. I had. Yeah. So now there is a whole. You have to get down to Quantico, and there's a whole entire day of you writing and preparing things, a, a stand up briefing, um, and then they have a list of questions. And as God is my witness, they asked me the same types of questions to be evaluated to be a GS-15 that we were asking new OSTs. I mean, so it, it, it's laughable. And so I, I just want to uh, speak very briefly regarding what Shipwreck had, had briefed is that this all started, and it's, it's on my interview with Kyle, um, with the Patriot Act and the lashing up of the intelligence cadre to the FBI, which did not exist before the Patriot Act. There was a lot of discussion whether they were going to do an MI5 sort of domestic intelligence standalone unit, and it was decided that that the FBI would take ownership of it. So that was like the wet concrete that was poured. And then over the course of years, a few years, not that long, you know, four, five, six years, with the in, uh, incorporation of the threat review process, the field office strategic plan, field office health measures, um, we became an intelligence entity as opposed to a law enforcement entity. And as an intelligence entity, you don't really have to make cases. You can just observe and report. You become mall cop forever. Um, so you, you, you lower your problems and then at the same time, the FBI, when it got the intelligence cadre, picked up over 60 senior executive positions, all of which were taken up by 1811s. So it became a gravy train. And that concrete set and gelled hard. Bob Mueller came to our office and you know pushed back on people um, about that whole volunteerism thing. It's like, no, if you want to move up, you have to move out. Um, so we, we could actually almost do a weekend seminar uh, on, on this, it, it's just been, it, it is solid concrete and it is set. And usually the only way to fix a problem like that is to break the concrete and repour it. Amen. Um, there's no mending and I don't know how we get there. That's the thing. Like for someone like me who didn't work inside this juggernaut, and just talks about things that happen inside of it and, you know, does a lot of legal briefing and a lot of legal work and, you know, reading and reporting what the answer, I don't see anyone with a set of cojones big enough to fix this problem. And that means it'll just keep getting worse. I mean, there's no quick fix to this is what I'm hearing from everybody. Right. I don't think there is a fix. I think it's a teardown project. I don't think this, this house can be rehabilitated or, 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 you know, improved, uh, or correct it anymore. It's a, it's not even a gut job. It's it's a wrecking ball job. Mm -hmm. But the sad thing is this is because the, the way that the FBI works when you knock on the door and people are willing to talk to you and people are willing to talk to you, by the way, like people who have no business talking to you will talk to you because you're the FBI and because you have those three letters and they mean something. They're supposed to mean, you know, integrity. There's that's supposed to be a big part of it. But when that's being eroded, and it's being eroded at a very fast rate, it doesn't have to be everybody in the FBI. It doesn't even have to be, you know, 20% of the FBI. If 5% of the FBI is abusing the power, and it's probably more than that at this point, but if it's 5% that's abusing it, 
then the entire brand is tarnished because everybody is guilty by association because there are enough people that are going to look at it. Local law enforcement knows they don't want to be associated with that because they got to still live in these communities. And the, the other feds are looking around going like, hell, I don't want to step in what you're stepping in. Like, what are you trying to get to the bottom with the ATF? Like the two of you guys are playing uh, chicken to get to the bottom of the barrel. And we are. So you've got these two things going on. And wh- when that happens, it's like the only reason that the Bureau can exist is if it is beyond reproach. But it's not beyond reproach. And it obviously hasn't been for a long time, but at least it faked it pretty well. Uh, there's a lot of people whose eyes are open to what's going on. And I think people have changed their opinions even in the last two or three years in a way that is staggering. Like it used to be that the left hated the FBI, if you guys remember. But if you go back far enough, like they were attacking right wingers, too, uh, in the 90s. Like there were there were some atrocities. And I think it was co-signing on the ATF's missteps. But either way, it doesn't really matter when you erode your brand and your brand is toxic. You don't really get to rebuild it. Like, I don't think you can rebrand the FBI the way that it is. Um, Here's here's what's happened. The FBI and and I'm seeing it play out in these cases in, in D.C., you know, in ways that I've never even imagined I would actually see it play out. But the FBI, along with the Department of Justice, I think Justice was a couple of years ahead of the FBI, and then the FBI followed. The the recruitment has has just so favored the social justice warrior mindset that you know that that it is the mission of the government, including the FBI, to 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 fight for equity you know the social justice outcomes and they are one thousand percent willing to engage in ends justifies the means thinking which is anathema to integrity ends justifies the means is the opposite side of the scale from integrity and integrity you know, you you let the chips fall where they may. You play fair, as I told, as I've told prosecutors and FBI in some of these cases, the government has no interest in the outcome of a criminal case. The government's right. only in the, in the outcome of a criminal case. All the government cares about is it puts on its case. It puts on its evidence. What the jury decides to do is of no consequence to the government. Win or lose, so what? The process is the victory for the government. But what I'm seeing from prosecutors, young prosecutors, you know, who are invested in the social justice war mentality, and the FBI agents who are working for them and taking their direction, and I describe this to retired FBI agents who I've known for 20, 25 years, and I tell them, you know what I had an FBI agent get on the stand and say to me, and then I describe the testimony? They are just... If they've been out more than five or six years and they didn't see this coming, they're stunned. If they've only been out shortly, they said, yeah, that's why I left. You know, as, as one who's particularly uh, friendly with me said, I left when it no longer resembled the organization I joined and I couldn't stand to go back another day. I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you an example. The Boston Marathon bombing at Catherine Sonarev. Carmen Ortiz, the U.S. attorney in Boston, said, and I quote, I will not make those children orphans. They're already without a father. And there was enough evidence for us to go after Catherine Sonarev. Wow. Well, let me let me describe for you guys. I'll just give you a generic example of, of what I'm facing in some of these cases. I, I get I get a particular agent on the stand out of Tampa. It's got like seven years experience. 
Hey, shit, not, not everybody knows that you're doing you're doing J six defense. So maybe just kind of we'll just kind of tune people <laughs> okay. into that. So I, 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 some people I do, but okay. I represent thirty January six defendants. I've now had two trials: one bench trial, one jury trial. I just finished the second Oath Keepers trial. Had, uh, my client was Roberto Menuda. Um, not a great outcome. We won a little bit. I think we're in good shape on some post trial appeals. But you know, I've been cross examining FBI agents now. And I and I see very clearly the method and the manner in which these agents are being prepared. And I want to describe this to Steve and Kyle and see if see if this is anything you guys could ever sign on to. Just so you know, Chip, Steve is he he blew the whistle on J six. So no, you guys, I understand. I understand. Yeah. But he had. I, I don't think either one of them have actually seen the courtroom performance of what what is happening. Likely cases. not. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So I get a, I get an agent on the stand. And, and I walk him through – I'm trying to educate the jury. I walk him through the process of how a case file gets, gets built, how it gets opened, and you know, what is documented in there and how the, you know, the, the, the mechanics of, you know, of a serialized, uh, a serialized documents get inserted into the case file to reflect the work that's being done. And it's organized in such a fashion that if for some reason the case agent moves on to some of the location – or gets promoted or whatever, and somebody else takes over as case agent, all they have to do is go back to EC1, read the opening, and go forward, and they'll know pretty much the substance of everything that's been done. And I knew that my client's case file had 134 documents in it. I, I had it. I had the serialized index. And so I began to walk him through my client's case file because he had testified about my client. And I asked him, so... You've testified to, in response to an earlier defense lawyer crossing. I said you said that you only came here prepared to testify about the documents that the government had showed you for your direct, and that you're not prepared to answer any other question because you couldn't you couldn't guess what you might be asked on cross examination. He said that's correct. And I said my client's case file has 134 serialized documents in it. How many did you read before getting on the stand to tell this jury about my client? I said, oh, I read his case file. I said, how many of the 134 documents did you read? And he said, I think I read 18. And I said, of those 18 that you read, <laughs> I said, of those 18 that you read, were all 18 of them related to the questions that the prosecutors ask you? He said, yes. I said, did you read anything else in those 134 serialized documents besides the ones that were necessary for you to answer the government's questions? He said, no. I said, so you came in here today unprepared to answer any questions or give this jury any other information beyond the script that you've memorized. And he said, he effectively said, yes, that's true. I came in here today prepared to be unprepared. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes perfect sense. Um, the sad thing is, is I could never imagine doing anything like that. Like, you know, you, you, you get uh, sent to grand jury on somebody else's case. It happens. So they'll throw like a case file in front of you and you got to go up there and, and even that there's no cross there. It's, it's all like pretty favorable. And like, they're just to try to get an indictment. So they're just looking for facts. And at the same time, I would read every single document that was in the case. It usually was inherited from a local police department. And we were going to, you know, go federal with a, like a gun charge or something. It's you're foolish. If you can't speak to every single thing that's in front of you, that is available. And uh, it, it's, it's sort of mind blowing, but it does speak to that mentality. I think you're spot on. They went in there, you know, they're sending TDYers in that are coming from all over the country. People don't realize this, but there's a 90 day forced TDY. They're being voluntold government term, you know, military term. They're being voluntold to leave their field office and go hang out in D.C. 
and work in a, in an offsite that only does January 6th cases and prep for these you know testimonies. And I guess the goal is to win or whatever it is. Like you're in D.C., you're probably going to win already because you're in D.C. But like you say, the process should be the win. I actually felt like my proudest moment was when somebody from the assistant U.S. attorney's office brought me a case and said, we want to look into this guy. And he's, you know, a sex offender registry violator. And I found out that what we thought was going on wasn't going on. And we vindicated him that we found all the exculpatory evidence by doing the investigation. And there was no prosecution. That was the proudest thing that I did because we kept basically the federal government out of a man's life that wasn't doing anything that was untoward. And we left it as a low state matter. And he basically got a slap on the wrist, which is what he belonged because he wasn't doing the thing that anybody thought he was. Um, he was building bicycles because he used to have like a masturbation problem and he was using his hands instead of literally idle hands is the devil's workshop sort of thing. He was just building bicycles and he built like 2000 bicycles in a period of six or eight years for poor kids in Mexico, which seems like a good thing to do if you are otherwise going to look at porn. But like that was for me, like that was the process. The process was the investigation, vindication. I don't get paid for a win. I just get paid for showing up and doing my job. Steve, I want you to talk to this. Yeah. Um, but I, Something that's missing here, like Kyle just referenced it, and I was going to say this, you know, these are people's lives at stake here, okay? So, like, what Chip was saying about, you know, innocent or guilty doesn't matter to the government, that's 100% right. They're not there to be invested in convicting someone. They're there to present the facts of the case and, and let a jury decide what the fate of this American citizen will be, whether they're guilty or not. The plea deal is usually taken far before a trial um, is even a glimmer. Um, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's very telling. It's, it's good to talk to somebody who's on the other side. Um, so, you know, if you have any uh, future defenses, Appendix J of the Domestic Investigation Operations Guide is uh, what uh, is the gist of my whistleblower complaint. The FBI is uh, departing from that uh, greatly. And uh, and you can bring that up when, when you put uh, any of my uh, former colleagues under oath and, and put nail them to the wall on it, because essentially and this, that's what I told my supervisor and my uh, assistant special agent in charge and my special agent in charge. I said, you want me to go in to I, I'm, I'm preparing always to go to testify in court. I don't I'm not going to go there unprepared. And you want me to get up there, sit on the stand and uh, a defense attorney is going to say, agent friend, you're the uh, case agent here. Uh, how much work did you do on this case? And I'm going to have to say none whatsoever. In fact, I, I didn't proofread. I, I mean, I might have read other people's work, but I performed no investigative action on this. So right, right then and there, we were vulnerable at trial, and because of a easily correctable thing that that's the, the you know a decision that was made early on in the process that we're going to spread the cases around the country as opposed to. Uh, having them officially be run from Washington field office. And then we're going to unofficially run them from Washington field office. And and the reason that we're doing that is to make sure that uh, the SACs get their bonuses because they hit their, their domestic terrorism case metrics. And, uh, and we're going to, you know, make it look like that domestic terrorism terror is on the rise around the country when really in, you know, in effect it's, you know, two to 3000 cases that are stemming from a four hour disturbance at the Capitol. So and, and, and back to the, uh, you know, the, the process being the, you know, itself the goal. I, I think now, and I've told, I've said this numerous times, the process is the punishment for people, even if they are not convicted or, you know, let's say they, they get some sort of probation or a slap on the wrist. These are people that have to retain an attorney. They have major disruptions to their lives. I sat and interviewed a man who had, was a, uh, a doctor who had lost his practice. And I uh, was at risk of losing his medical license because he'd gone into the Capitol and uh, uh, 
had done so after talking to a police officer who said, yes, you can go inside and done no damage and walked outside. Um, so there, there was, and that's a guy whose life is completely in turmoil now. And it's as a result of, you know, the FBI saying we're, we're, we're game. We're going to be, we're going to be the judge, jury and executioner here um, in, in how we go about our business. So, yeah, I think that the, uh, the, the, the way that the cases have been done is, is problematic because, you know, at, at its very core, we were supposed to have this due process. And, you know, look, I can't I would get in trouble if I use the wrong color evidence tape on uh, a physical piece of evidence versus an electronic piece of evidence. And for whatever reason, some egghead probably got uh, promotion at headquarters, uh, decided that we need a different color tape for that. That's a procedural problem. Um, that I would be grilled at a trial. And then, then, you know, obviously a good defense attorney would say, well, if you didn't follow the simple protocols on tape color, you know, what, what other problems can we assume that you made in this case? That's, that's just an easily, you know, an easy landmine to avoid. Well, now, now we're not following protocols on how we're managing cases. You know, I, I'm, I, my name is at the top of the piece of paper. Um, other guys in my offices, we're, we're supposed to be running the cases and we're sitting here and we're waiting for directives from people at headquarters who, like we, like we said before, they're, they're being TDY'd to Washington. Um, I was able to avoid being voluntold to go. Uh, instead, a, a newer agent uh, had to step on that landmine for me. Um, but he went and told me the things that are going on there were essentially uh, you have federal prosecutors that are creating evidence products and then coming up to the agents yep. and saying, hey, I need you to swear this out. I need you to do the affiant on this. Uh, you don't need to look at it. Just swear it out for me. I already did the work for you. That's that's par for the course. That's terrifying. That's the well, antithesis. Well, so, 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 here, so in the Oath Keepers case, you know, a, big, um, a big source of evidence in the Oath Keepers cases, there's three of them, are, are, are the, the signal chats, so using the signal app, uh, from Stuart Rhodes' phone. They got Stuart Rhodes' phone. It had 1,100 separate chats on it and 400,000 unique messages. And so the government has, you know, and, and it's not just the signal chats, but Facebook and all kinds of other sources. They they have they have taken hundreds, cherry picked, which is this argument I use with the jury. Cherry picked, taken the messages that they liked, and assembled them in some fashion that made a compelling case, even though they were often out of context. And and then so they would like create. We just called them slide decks, for lack of a better better description. They would take these um, these messages and assemble them in like a slide deck of a hundred consecutive messages, and the agent would simply get on the stand, and they'd pull up slide one, and he'd say where it came from and where it went to, and read it. And and slide two, where it came from, where it went to, you know, well, who's that person? And say, well, that person is so and so, and who was it going to? It was going to this other person who was so and so, and then read the message. And we had hours and hours and hours of this. And then the agents would say on cross-examination, well, that document, that exhibit was assembled by the prosecutor. Did you have any input in it? No, I didn't. And so what's your role here? Just to verify that the message they take came from the, the items of evidence that were seized in, in you know, most cases, Stuart Rhodes' phone. And, and uh, did you insert any? No. Did you take any out? No. Um, you know, so they're just they're just they're just glorified, you know, screen readers. That's all they're doing. They can't they, they, they can't answer questions about anything beyond read what's on the screen. I had an interesting close. I, 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 I had a kind of an epiphany come to me while I was in the close 
the uh, I had five FBI agents testify in this case over six weeks, and they all did the you know their slice of the pie. I, I was calling it. just they got their little slice of the pie. They don't know anything else. They're just going to testify about what they know about their little slice of the pie. But one of them said early on that this sort of the overall case agent for this for the Oath Keepers investigation was this particular guy. I'm not going to use any names right now, but this particular guy had a WFO. He was like quarterback over all of it. And so in closing, I said, you know, you heard from five different FBI agents and I, li- I named all five agents. I said they all gave you the same sort sort of uh, version of. And then I explained how, you know, they didn't know nothing about nothing except what they were told to memorize. And I said, but remember, agent so-and-so told you that the overall investigator, the overall case agent, the guy who was the quarterback of all this, was special agent XYZ. Well, you know what? Let me introduce you to him. He's sitting here at council table. He's been here for six weeks, 15 feet from you in the jury, and not once did the government put him on the stand to answer any questions. And the jurors... You couldn't call? Oh, I could have, but... You know, put an FBI on the stand and, and just let him go on cross-examination. That's taking a big risk. There were lots of things that he would say that I, you know, I was just as happy him not sitting there. It was yeah. just the whole idea that the government would not call him to testify when he's the guy as the case agent over the overall investigation who can likely answer all the questions. They didn't want him on the stand. And Ship, I don't know if this was your experience, but all of the uh, the affidavits that were being sworn out for all the process that was being served, um, they were seeming like they were all generic. At least my buddies that were working it early on were saying they had these like 65 page long, um, you know, background affidavits for the uh, for complaints and things like this. They were just building on. They had Trump's tweets in it. They had nothing to do with the individual case. They're all just background making January 6th sound like it's this this villainous activity. And then, like, some minor part of it would relate to the actual subject of the investigation. Yep, and, that's and, the way they Or maybe not at all. And these were being written, by the way, by AUSAs. They weren't right. being written by FBI agents. And so these were being shoved down on people that I knew. And they were like, it's really gross because this has nothing to do with the investigation I'm doing. Like, it's a minor trespassing charge. But I've got, you know, weeks of background intel on this thing and what people knew and when and what news reporters did what. And, it, and none of it had anything to do with what they were actually trying to prosecute. Yeah, the first 20, 25 pages of pretty much every criminal complaint affidavit and every search warrant affidavit, they're all the same. They all talk about January 6th, you know, just the events of the day. And then there and then and then the, the last section is, you know, the the conduct of, you know, defendant so and so on January 6th. And then they go into the specific conduct that they want to tell the court about that particular individual can we take some questions for some folks I'll, everybody can finish what they have to say but sure I sure give mitt uh first run i saw him got kicked off earlier and we brought him back up mitt if you want to run hey uh some of i had to smile when you had uh ship talk because we've uh, talked about it or conversed over twitter about it a couple of times about the employees and uh, and how the retirements have affected everything and how the new employees uh you know coming in have affected, have affected, well, actually infected everything. Um, and the colleges, if you look at our colleges, our college, can you think of a, of a more prolific breeding ground of um, left liberal progressive idealism? There, there is no better breeding ground for it than our universities and our colleges here in the U.S., well, all over the world. And the people that come out have a certain tilt, Right. And uh, ship went over that pretty good, and we both agreed on that. But we also agreed that we started seeing it 
back in around 2010, which, which uh, Ship even, you know, happened to mention. And I think, Tracy, if you'll remember back a couple of weeks ago on a Spaces, I talked to, to you a little bit about how the whole terrorism program started changing at that same time where the Islamic radical terrorist, all of a sudden, all that verbiage, everything got taken out of all the training manuals and, and it started being replaced with, you know, m- more like a uh, homeland, uh, our own citizens are the problem and it just everything kind of changed. And at that same time, it coordinated and coincided with what Ship was talking about, how the program for training our agents, tr- program for training police officers. And I think maybe it was Kyle that was talking earlier that it was more the FBI and locally, maybe we didn't have that problem. But locally, the scary thing in, is, Tracy, locally, we do have the problem. And, and the reason is that if you want to change what's happening, you change the rules and you change the people. And, and that's where you start at the base. So these kids that get out of college just don't get to become FBI agents. They just don't get a FBI badge. And they don't get a police officer's badge. You don't get a sheriff's badge. You have to go through a hiring process. And that is where the focus has been since 2008, 2009, is they've changed. The personnel department used to be the personnel department. Now it's human resources. And the people in charge of hiring are the people who are affecting who comes in the door. Now, Ship agreed with me when we talked about it, that the that way that process happened changed completely 10 years ago and i know in our local and state uh, county agencies we used to do the hiring when i say we i mean people from the line line personnel captains and every once in a while a chief uh, commanders would be on the oral boards and we would have a probably the biggest role in who came on duty and who didn't and who survived that but mate you muted yourself if, if if you heard me before, I was talking about how we used to do the hiring, the, the line. Yeah, got that. Yeah. Right. Well, then in, in that period of time in 2009, 2010, human resources started coming inside the room and listening and partaking and kind of giving suggestions. And uh, it it grew from that to they were controlling um, actually what questions you could ask. And then they were participating in handing out grades. And I know sometimes they would say, oh, my goodness, that was a fantastic candidate. And we would look at each other and we had written down like the barely minimum passing score. Um, And they started really changing who was coming in the door and who was allowed to come in the door. And Tracy, you said you found it hard to wrap your head around about what you're going to do and how can we change those things. But the liberal progressive left is good at what they do. And you look at the voting laws. How did that change? They went after secretary of states. They put secretary of states in charge. You look at uh, local prosecutions. You change the DA. When a DA is very progressive, you're going to have a hard time taking cases and getting the case to go any further than the DA's office. You change the county sheriff. You change the police chief. And you just start hiring woke at all these different levels. And you can't get past that. You can't make the ethics part of it that we talked about a little bit earlier on the space go past that because they've got this great roadblock set up of this wokeism at the hiring level. And the only way FBI hire, you have to have a college degree. And most guys come in and they have advanced college degrees. You'd almost have to start hiring people that didn't go to college if you really wanted to change it. But that's not going to happen because they have the rules in place and then they have 
the new human resources. They have the people in charge of the hiring that require that. But as long as we continue to require that, and as long as we uh, continue to have those types of hurdles and those people in charge of doing the actual hiring, that's who we're going to end up with. And it's pervasive, Tracy. It's not just the FBI. It's certainly the DOJ. I mean, that's fairly obvious. Um, but it's throughout all levels of government, city, county, state, local, federal, and the human resources department and the way that they hire has changed completely. And that's who they're bringing in on, you know, just starting out. And then the same thing goes through the promotional processes. So Mitt, one of the things that uh, you're hundred percent right on is that uh, what the FBI did as far as bringing people in the door, uh, it probably used to be a process where they actually got to screen people out. In fact, even in my time there, we did a process called meet and greet where you could just kind of free form some questions and you'd ask the new candidates who were going to be new agents, you know, what they were about. And they'd ask you some questions about it. They got to the point where they tried to sterilize this. They tried to make it a, a measurable government metric, like so many things. They wanted to pull personality out of it. So they yes, exactly biased process. But by making it a quote unquote unbiased process, they made it a garbage process that didn't actually allow you to select people that were good. And 100%. so. They, they would literally – it was the weirdest interview I ever had in my life was uh, was that what they call FBI Phase 2 interview. And they would put you out there. They have three different agents. And so I had like a black male, uh, a white female, and like a Hispanic male or something. Like they try to make as much diversity happen in it like in the, like by looks, not by experience. That wouldn't matter to them. But they just like physically – like they, they're as you know, different as they could look. They put them all across the table from you. They put a freaking old school tape recorder down. Um, like a cassette player, they'd hit record, which is hilarious. Uh, this was in the New York field office where I did this. And then they would go, you know, uh, candidate, you know, question one. And then they would read you some weird question. Like, what was the time that you experienced a leadership crisis and demonstrated leadership when others could not? And then you would go, you'd go, um, all right, well, I was in the Air Force and I did this thing and I had, you know, a squad of this number of people and this and this and that, blah, blah, blah. And so you talk about it and, you know, we had a problem and I solved it with this things and these are the techniques I used and here's what I learned out of it. And I probably could have done this better, but, you know, it's one of those things you learn as a leader, blah, blah, blah. And then it would go, question two. And the next person would ask a question and there was like no response. They would just be blank faced. And every once in a while you'd work in a joke because you're a human being and you want to show that you got some personality. And oh, they are right. actually instructed that they are not allowed to respond in any meaningful human way other than to ask the questions or an appropriate follow-up question. And um, they're not supposed to give you any input onto whether or not you're responding in a way they like or they don't like or whether they agree with you or they don't agree with you. They're supposed to keep their faces neutral, which is absurd because the goal of an, of an FBI agent is to go out there and meet people, read people, and be able to act on human interactions in a meaningful way to do investigations. Not only that, but just take a look at Moore's emails and you see a whole lot of personality in those. I mean – well, she got hired maybe before that happened. She got hired in the in the late 90s. Um, so I don't know what her process was like, but I do know that they've basically done this thing. And if you look up into the nest, you'll see that uh, I posted some of the gender ideology training that got pushed down by the human resources people who are not a personnel department, who don't just handle, you know, whether or not your payroll goes through. These are the people that are trying to describe the actual culture of the bureau. And so when you get that stuff out there, it's uh, it's really scary. And uh, I, I want to hit all these hands up, but I just want to say, folks, uh, as we're adding you on as requested speakers, um, a lot of you are dropping off on accident. There's like some glitchiness. So just be aware that I, we may not bring you up until it's actually time to speak. And I apologize that it's not um, ideal. I don't know whose hands was up first. I wasn't watching. Well, Steve has his hand up. Um, let him speak. And George has his hand up, too. And then we'll go to Ron. Yay. And thank you. 
I think I think Paul was before any of them, actually. So, yeah, Steve and then George. And then yeah, I'll Paul. be quick. Kyle, I had the exact same uh, phase two. You know, I had one one from L.A., one New York, one San Juan. And they go through the, 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 through the questions. <laughs> Tell us about a time. Tell us about a time when. And it was it was just super awkward. And uh, and and my takeaway was I actually knew um, another person in my academy class uh, beforehand, and I asked her. You know, she she had gone to her phase two ahead of time, and I said, "Hey, how was it?" Or and she said, "Oh, I you know I can't talk about it." So I, I go do mine. Then afterwards, it's I figure it's all good. We can we can kind of have a conversation. And I said, "Well, that was really strange, and the questions were really kind of difficult." And her response to me was that uh, that there was nothing that hadn't been given to her ahead of time um, because they had provided her with the questions ahead of time to prepare so we get into now like you know choosing candidates you know and i'm sure you know she was actually very qualified but you know I'm, I'm sure the fact that she was a she and i was a guy was uh playing into their calculus on deciding whether or not to, to give her the questions ahead of time unbelievable george Rock and roll, and then we'll go. Sure. On. So, real quick, to the gentleman's uh, point, uh, I said about college graduates. So, I was a field counselor at FBI, the FBI Academy. I think I don't know 2016, and I had the opportunity to have lunch with Director Comey and a few of his minions. And I was there specifically, um, or wanted to address the intelligence program to Director Comey. And I said that we were hiring the wrong people. Um, requiring a college degree. I said that after 15 years of war in two theaters, Afghanistan and Iraq, that we literally have thousands of people that have real world operational experience that are high performers, goal oriented as opposed to process oriented. And we really need to reconsider our requirement for a college degree and start looking at, at men and women uh, that have actually been out there and have, you know, gotten shit done. Um, 100%. So, so I'm going to just shut up. Thank you. Paul, you're up. I agree with you. Hey, thanks for letting me talk. Yeah, I, 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 it's crazy. I'm just listening to this, and I spent 25 years in the Border Patrol, and it's like your SESs and our SESs must be talking to each other because they act the same way. Um, but I did have one question for um, – Oh my God, what's his name? Shipwreck. And he disappeared on my screen. But, you know, the DOJ, when we worked under DOJ, when I first got in the BP, the DOJ and the way they ran things was just crazy. You know, that it wasn't about getting the job done and prosecuting anybody. It was just about numbers. It didn't, they didn't care about anything else. And then when I went to DHS, it kind of changed the culture a little bit, but not much. And, the DOJ runs the FBI and all these other law enforcement agencies. Aren't they the real culprits behind all this? And that's all I got for you. And I, I don't know if it's, if it can be, you know, pawned off on one side, it's a hand inside of a glove, you know, they, they operate uh, in tandem. It feels like, so it's really difficult to, to assign blame to one and, and, and give somebody, you know, like a free pass on the other, you know, you talk about border patrol and I, I worked with the uh, Alamogordo station, which was close by, and uh, and then obviously we had the all the El Paso sections down there, which was Bridge of the Americas and all the stuff they did. And um, there was another one that was at, down in Antelope Wells, which was 
what was it called? Uh, Lordsburg. So, you know, I, I worked with Border Patrol guys. I like them. They're good people, as, as you well know. Like, some of the most patriotic people in the world will sign up to do that gig. It's hot. It's, it's kind of rough. They're standing and asking questions to people driving in checkpoints. They don't want to necessarily be standing there and doing that, but that's the gig. And um, sadly, when we would have, like, assault on federal officers or threat cases against them, um, you know, we would go out there and do the investigation. We'd drive 45 minutes out into the middle of nowhere where these checkpoints are and get a good interview statement. And, you know, they would have all the information. One, uh, DOJ wasn't arming VP uh, with the information on what they could actually hold on to and charge. Like I had guys that were convicted felons that were being let go, even though they had freaking ammo in their car. And we could have charged the ammo, even though there was no gun, because the guy had 10 felonies going back 15 years. And so these guys were getting off the hook after they threatened to come back up and shoot the Border Patrol station up, which is not a good feeling. And uh, and then the then the uh, AUSAs would let it sit long enough that by the time we would try and go in and do an indictment, it's like, man, are we really going to go to an indictment like six months and claim this guy's a legitimate threat? Six months after he already walked off and made those threats, he hasn't made good on them yet. Why would anybody think this is a good case? And so they were, you know, they were so inefficient at handling some of this stuff that, you know, I had cases walk away that were slam dunks. So some of it was bad information given out to BP, which wasn't their fault. They just had bad intel. And they weren't given a code book that we could prosecute. And the second piece of it was uh, a U.S. U.S. attorney's office that wasn't willing to go with us. So we're just not arming the people that want to do the right thing with the right tools. And in the meantime, we're going after this BS that's going on in you know January 6th or white supremacy or you name it that are politically motivated when there's legitimate crimes that are happening and federal law enforcement could be working all day long, every day with no break. And they could be doing that work and people would be proud of it and people would be proud to be a part of it instead of like where, you know, my two buddies that lived across the street from me were brothers. Uh, one of them was on Bortac. He was a total stud. He was a he was a step down as a, as a deputy commander over there and like just a bad, bad dude. And he was super motivated. I mean, he had like side businesses and hustles and he never stopped working and he owned a painting company. Like, I love this guy because he just was the epitome of the American dream in so many ways. First generation Mexican-American. And then you look at what's going on and he got injured pulling a, uh, a pedestrian out of a burning freaking car on duty. And the uh, the job came back to him and told him, basically, you've been on light duty too long. You haven't had your surgery, which obviously was because of government health care. And because you haven't... Uh, shown back up on full-time duty, we're going to throw you out. And he ended up being able to get medical retirement and he didn't fight it because he had four more years. And why the hell would you go back to work for an agency that doesn't love you? His brother got injured on a chase and, uh, you know, tore an ankle and then had the same problem. And they basically went after him for his duty issues. And he walked off as well as a senior supervisor who was a good human being. And so we're not supporting these people in good ways. We're not going after the guys that are threatening them. And it just makes you sick because, you know, like I said, like guys who are on the line that are trying to do the job, there's plenty of great people, but it's failing on so many different levels of management. doesn't matter if you're a GS-14 or above. Like, I know Steve has feelings about this too, but they just suck on so many levels that, like, how else do you do it except destroy it? And not only that, they're, they're getting rid of all of you guys, <laughs> the, good, the good guys, and they're all afraid to step forward. You know, and then the people that are in there are afraid to step forward because they see how people are being targeted. So if we had, like, a thousand whistleblowers, can you imagine – like there, there have to be so many people that are just not going to put themselves through what you guys are putting yourself through, and Congress isn't helping. I'm just saying. No, they're not helping at all. Um, you know, especially when they, they're laying out, you know, who their 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 first witnesses are going to be for this new subcommittee. Before we get into that, though, uh, I want to talk about one thing that, that George mentioned, and and sort of what what Paul brought up with it being it all about the numbers. Um, 
you know, I think if, if you were going to make one massive reform, it would be this threat review prioritization and field office strategic planning process where they've essentially held. And even if there are five percent of folks who are politically minded and then they're driving the agency in the wrong direction, you've got 95 percent of people who are captive to these metrics and these numbers that make no sense and and, and essentially is hindering actual work from going on. I asked uh, Chris Gonzalez last night on, on uh, Kyle's pad, podcast. And I've, and I've asked numerous others and got and, and had this experience myself. Uh, have you ever had a supervisor come to you and say, hey, you know, th- this case that you have, you do a great work on it. Uh, would you mind not indicting it this month? Could you wait maybe a couple months? Because we already hit our numbers this year and uh, and we want to get that in for next fiscal year. And and all of us have had it happen. And that's just one example and a very simple, simple you know, aspect. Now, now, you know, bring that into effect with using certain sophisticated uh, tech investigative techniques where, you know, well, the, uh, the boss uh, really, really wants this wiretap put into place because the boss has to have a wiretap so the boss can get a $20,000 bonus. And, and we're all captive to meeting these metrics. And we spend the, the last quarter, especially the fiscal year tied to our desks where we're Culling through casework that's already done, cases sometimes already closed, looking for statistical accomplishments that we can claim that were done that we just overlooked. And it's not giving us any any information that's good for, for supporting the mission going forward because a lot of these cases are already done. And the subject might be convicted and sentenced and sitting in, in prison somewhere. But we're going through and saying, well, well uh, I forgot. I, uh, I I did surveillance once, uh, and we need to have a 200 surveillance stats for the year as a division, and uh, I'm just going to claim that real quick so, so we can amend it. And I can't tell you the amount of times that I sat there in – August and September as we were coming up in the end of the fiscal year and the bosses were freaking out that we were short on specific categories where they would just say, don't leave your desk. You need to be available to go back and amend the cases that are already done so we can take credit for things that you did months ago. But, you know, it wasn't important to you because you just wanted to put a bad guy in jail. But, you know, you really need to take credit for me on this. That's it. Okay, we're going to do um, Ron and then uh, The Following and then Patriot and then Dark Knight. You dropped off, but I'll bring you back on. Let's roll. Ron, you're up, buddy. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you so much, Tracy, and everyone for being here. Um, I'm a J6er. Uh, try to keep it quick. Um, I'm an unindicted J6er, but I'm in some pretty major photographs. Um, if you look at my profile, I was face-to-face with Officer Fanone. I literally touched his wrist as he was motioning towards his sidearm coming through the crowd. Uh, you know, I yelled at him, it's okay, we got you. And then he made it back to the to the tunnel. Um, I helped uh, Phyllis Anderson after Jake Lang dropped him off. I pulled the shirt off of his neck. Um, I was in the tunnel. I was stomping my flagpole at the edge of the steps before I knew anything even happened. There was no idea. I had no idea that there was anything happening on those steps until bombs went off behind me, the flashbangs. And I got covered with gas. Um, so to make it quick, all of you um, FBI and legal folks out here with all this experience, why am I not haven't been questioned? I haven't been talked to. I, I'm invisible, which I appreciate greatly. But it also is a terrible thing that so many people are incarcerated, being treated horribly. And I, um, you know, I wasn't a bad person. That day is most nobody was a really a bad person. There were provocateurs. I saw them with my own eyes, heard them with my own ears. 
but what the heck is going on with the people that were there, like myself, and nothing at all. Thanks, everyone. I'll mute myself now. Now, that's interesting. That's the first time I've ever heard somebody do what what you just did, and I'm so curious to hear Ship's uh, perspective on this, and then any of you yeah, guys. Tracy, you're not, you're not in enough of these J6 spaces. People come in and talk about their weird experiences. Um, I'm going to let Ship do his thing, too, but I, I do have people hit me up in DMs about this kind of stuff all the time. It's pretty wild how um, asymmetric the enforcement has been, and, um, you know, don't don't catch yourself out yet, Ron. Sorry. I don't Sadly, uh, FBI Security Division will definitely review this podcast at some point, which is not great for anybody. But uh, I've been turned in multiple times. I say hi to them all the time, and I do <laughs> ask for my hat back. Good for you. They took. They have my hat. I'm wondering which one has has it hanging on their wall. And and in the video, I actually turned around the crowd as it got too dangerous. So, uh, you know, I did do things that were above and beyond. I, I literally told the crowd to turn around and turned around and pushed against the crowd when people could breathe at, at the point during the first push. It was, it was before Roseanne Boylan. It was before it got really bad after the shouts of they killed a girl started ringing out through the crowd that, that really incited the crowd for a second wave of, of the terrible tunnel action. Uh, thanks again. I'll mute myself. There are good people yeah, in the bureau. I, I I worked with a couple of them in Boston that said, "No, we're not doing this." Yeah. Um, so so here's sort of as okay. So two things. I I think the government has only paused here in terms of its indictments. Um, I, I think what happened, which I mean, I, I can't believe that DOJ or the FBI didn't see it coming. Is I think at some point. The judges sent a message back channel saying, stop, you have exceeded our physical ability to handle cases. You have charged too many people in too short a period of time, not able to produce the discovery so that the cases can move. Um, you know, the, the first case, I, I think the first guilty plea was like 11 months or nine or ten months into the process before they had the first guilty plea. And the first trial didn't take place for 14 months. I think the March of uh, 2022 was the first trial, and that was uh, Guy Reffin. Um, so so I think when the government stopped indicting on a, you know, a, a, a regular basis, they only did so because of a back-channel communication from the court saying, you know, you got to pause and let some of these cases work themselves out. Well, now there's been about 350 defendants resolved either through guilty plea or trial. I think you'll probably see another 300 between now and the end of the summer because what's happened in the last six or eight months is the government has essentially said, okay, we've done all the discovery. We've pretty much everything that we need to get out has now gone out. Um, and so the judges began to aggressively set cases for trial, which is how you end up with guilty pleas. Um Last fall, I would say, you know, September, October, November, the judges got more aggressive about demanding trial dates. Well, you see a lot of trial dates, I know, because they're on my calendar. You see a lot of trial dates between now and August. So you're going to see a, 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 a large number of cases begin to resolve themselves either by guilty pleas or trials between now and the end of the summer. That is going to lead, I'm 100% sure, because I've had it said to me by people that would know, 
that's going to lead to an increased number of new, a new round of indictments, probably starting the late spring and continuing all through the summer. They just did two the other day, I believe. Yeah, I think they're, I think when they find people, they think they might have difficult finding. Um, logical consistency with what's being charged with. If you engage in any kind of physical confrontation, laid hands on whatever, any any Metropolitan Police Officer, U.S. Capitol Police Officer, you're generally getting charged. If it's an assault, you're going to get charged with a 111 count. If it's just sort of being disruptive and interfering with the officers attempting to clear whatever they were doing, then you're going to get a what's called a 231 civil disorder count. If you went inside the Capitol, depending on what you did when you went inside or what you did outside before you went inside, that, you know, some of those defendants are getting the obstruction of Congress counts, which are called 1512 counts. I know I'm talking in code here, and I apologize for that. Um, If you only walked through an open door, spent, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes walking around inside, didn't do anything, didn't touch anybody, didn't break anything. You know, I'm call, I call those the tourist protesters. Those are the people that are just getting the misdemeanor, basically glorified trespassing charges. Um, so so it's the charging decisions are relatively consistent. Now, are they being overcharged? Of course they're being overcharged. But at least there is consistency that I'm seeing based upon the video, you know, the government sees certain things in the video and that determines what they're going to charge people with. Um, if in questionable cases, I've had them, I've had a couple instances where the government's come down off a felony and given a misdemeanor charge. That's very rare, but they have done it. Um, and I've seen, I've had several cases and I've seen many cases where they've come down off the most serious felony to give a much less serious felony. The most, the most specific example of that is, and some inside baseball here. But in many instances where the government could have stuck with the aggravated assault charge, which is a 111B count, the government has dropped the B count, the aggravated count, and taken a plea to the 111A count. That's big for a defendant who's at risk because it drops the maximum penalty from 20 years to 8 years, but it also makes the defendant eligible for a lot of BOP programs that can cut their sentence. Jake Chansley is my client, QAnon Shaman. I didn't represent him at trial, or I didn't represent him when he was standing, uh, when he pled guilty. I picked him up as a client afterwards. Okay, so what are we? We're a little more than 24 months after the event, right? Two years and, and one month. So we're coming up on 25 months after the event. Jake Chansley got 42 months. He's going to be released in a couple weeks. So he, in effect, has only done 24, 25 months of a 42-month sentence. One of the reasons is because he qualified for some BOP programs that allowed him to knock time off of his sentence and get released early. Um, so, so the government has made some plea opportunities available. I had a client who got a very good one, was looking at a much longer sentence because of his criminal history. Um, they dropped the B count. He got the A count. And he qualifies for some rehab programs that he can take advantage of and, and probably is going to cut his 
78 month sentence down into the high 40s. So there is some consistency in their charging decisions. And there's a lot more people that are going to be charged. Thank you, Shipley, for all that. Uh, in my specific circumstance, like, what in the world? I'm literally, my pic, the picture I put it on I the saw, thing I is in it. the congressional record. It's in the congressional record with me and Fanon face-to-face, and I'm, you know, had, in the tunnel. I, I, like, there's a lot of stuff. I had a client right there next to where you are with Fanon. I, 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 uh, Lucas Denny out of Texas pled guilty. He, he was right in that same situation, exactly where you're at with Fanon outside the tunnel. Okay, did you see the picture though with the you know the blue arm backing Fanoon? It's it's an iconic picture backing the blue literally, and my red arm forcing a, a the route for Fanoon to come through. Right, right. There were there and, were crowd members right where you were that that assisted Fanoon in in yes. getting through the crowd after he had been pulled out of the tunnel. Yes, and they've been and they've been indicted and they've been questioned. Right. Um, there have been people indicted. A lot of people have been questioned, and and I. It sounds like you have been questioned. I you, no, I haven't okay, been well, questioned. Well, I've was, I've never been contacted by okay, anyone. Well, let me say this to you, and Kyle and Steve, I think will back me up. When the FBI shows up at your door, and uh-huh. say we'd just like to ask you a few questions, they're not there by accident, and they're not necessarily there to be your friend. In, oh, in all, I'm in fully almost, aware of that. In actually, yes. all instances. They're not there to be your friend. You gain nothing by talking to them. Oh, I'm becoming a mute. I'm, I'm taking a vow of silence the moment they come. Kyle? Yeah, right. well, they're, they're, they're going to have this. Yeah, that's 100% accurate. I mean, obviously, they're going to have this recording because it's out there in the world, brother. But uh, there's no reason to talk to anybody. And if they don't have a court order, then they don't need to come in. And uh, they can talk through a closed door. That, that's the move. They're... Look, I, I offered to take all these interviews I in, in Las Cruces because I'm more than happy to walk up to people and just shake my head no while I'm saying, would you like to talk to me and give them what my old team sergeant used to do when he would give me an out to not uh, to not answer a dumb question. It's it's a good move to just shut your mouth when these things go down. There's there's no upside to it. You're not going to straighten anything out. And unfortunately, so many people have that plan and they still screw it up and they go and talk. Um, I don't want to I want to try to jump on to the next one unless you got something that's real, real urgent. You got to jump in, Ron. I do appreciate yeah, one real quick. We have Philip Anderson in the group, but he's way down. Uh, Philip Anderson was the one who was with Roseanne Boyland. Yep. Um, he's he's in. He doesn't have a lot of time. So if you wanted to have him talk real quick, that'd be great. Thank you so much for all your answers, guys and gals. Yeah, you bet. Let's let's let the following on. Uh, Philip, I'll bring you on just a second here. Following you up. Hey, I'm actually Joe Nierman. People know me as Good Logic. I have a YouTube channel. Uh, oh yeah, I, of course. I, We've spoken, haven't we? I think so. Yeah, I had to change. I because of family reasons, I had to change my um. My, my Twitter handle to the following pro, but, um, yeah, same guy. Anyway, I want to just, I'll be 90 seconds or less. I want to start by just saying that it's a pretty sad state in America. The fact that our DOJ is, is such close kissing cousins with the FBI. I mean, as, as I, I'm not sure if it was shipwreck or someone else mentioned earlier, the whole idea to our justice system is that there's, it's supposed to be about upholding the process and the concept that we have in our country that there's a meritocracy based on how many of its own citizens it can put behind bars. This is an agency that's for the people, and its agenda is to jail the people. 
and there's, there's a meritocracy based on that. That is a bizarre state of affairs, which, which shows you just how, how twisted things have become, that it's not about the process, it's about your success and, and convicting your own citizenry. But I just, I just wanted to mention that I was covering, I was covering the batting trials this past summer and, and I actually went with a different attorney there was another there was one of those trials going on for the January for January 6th defendants and we were looking at we were watching the jury selection and I have to tell you you know I know shipwreck mentioned earlier how there's so little integrity and in what you know and how these cases get prosecuted and how the how the FBI witnesses that come forward are basically scripted they don't need to be scripted I, I looked at that jury pool. It's like person after person there was not simply watching the January 6th hearings. They were, they had them like on TiVo. I mean, they were fascinated by everything that came out of, of that, of that committee's report. And they're sitting there watching it. One person after another would be called up. They would, they would go through a voir dire. And after they answered the voir dire, they'd be asking about them. And it's like one person after another had a sister who was in the Capitol, has, has a, a, a wife who's working for Democratic congressmen. Every person working in Washington there, it seems like with almost it's very rare exception that if they themselves don't work there, they don't have an immediate family member, whether it's a spouse, a, a, a sibling, a parent who has spent years working for in politics in Washington. And they are very highly motivated to like person after person. And it doesn't matter how great an attorney you have as as as, as defendant. It's like your jury pool there is like you're looking at, okay, well, that one wants to see me drawn and quartered, and the next one wants to see me beheaded, and the other one wants to see me hanged. And, and the, the judges aren't, recu- aren't, aren't removing any of them for cause. So it's like, which one do you want to get rid of? Like, you know, okay, I guess I don't want to be beheaded, so I'll go with the hanging, the, the, the hanging juror. It's a very sad state of affairs, and the fact that they have to twist the screws even further by scripting stuff for the, for the police who are testifying is just, it, it, I don't. I would think that they can walk in there and get a conviction with their eyes closed half the time. Hey, can I suggest something? Let's let's do something controversial, Kyle. You there, Tracy? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, you want to introduce some fireworks into this little uh, shindig we got going? Sure. Let's bring Brian and Ed Krasenstein in and see if they actually want to talk. <laughs> See if they want to actually get engaged in a dialogue. Yeah, I'm open to that. I don't, I don't, before I talk to either one of them, I, I've been in plenty of spaces with with Ed and with Brian. I don't, they're happy, if they want to come up, they can come talk. Um, I want to get through speakers that that wanted to say a piece, and then if they want to request, it, it's open to them for sure. I invited no them up it. if they'd like to come up and join. I'm more than happy to accommodate that request. Good to go. Hey, Patriot, I think you're up next, uh, my friend, and we'll let you roll. We'll get Dark Knight, and then uh, Philip, right. I'll try to get you on. I appreciate it, guys. Uh, thanks for letting me uh, be on this discussion. Uh, I, I'm going to try to be as brief as I can. I'm, I'm, uh, got hit on a lot, a lot of points. I, I'd, I'd like to just talk about. But I promise I'll, I'll keep it under two minutes. And just, just it's kind of lateral, but at the same time, you'll see it it connects. So, so just bear with me. And a little background: I was trained in investigation analysis in, in the Marines. So just a little bit of background there um, for, for reporting accidents and stuff like that. But, you know, it, it was, it was through the government. And so I have that training to understand uh, 
some of the things you know how, how things operate and uh with, with with the the way you guys were speaking about the how things are processed someone's background noise is on it's, so how are you speaking about how things were kind of like uh just on paper really to to you know justify funding I, i've been dealing with the va for 20 years and and i've seen it there it's, it's the whole government you know, they're, they're just trying to justify their spending so they can continue getting that funding for the next year. And, uh, it's, it's just always, you know, if, if we go there and reform the way government spends, you know, we, we, we could tackle a lot of this, uh, fraud, waste and abuse. And so, so being in the Marines, I was there in, in the early 2000s. And what you guys were speaking about, about, you know, pulling up the loyalists. I guess I'll say from the ranks it, that was happening under Clinton and, and Bush. I, I remember my senior people discussing that, how, you know, this officer or whatever got promoted and they're, they're basically a moron for lack of better words. And, and I mean, I, I'm trying to be respectful here on, in this uh, forum. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's been going on for a while too, you know, it's, but Obviously, after Obama, think things ramped up to like full speed. And with that, I was uh, I, I had an adverse reaction to to the anthrax vaccine, <clears throat> and, and I, I was told, "Oh, be quiet about that. You know, you don't want to draw attention." So, so I was like, "Okay, well, why? All right." And 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 this is by a senior officer. You know, he kind of pulled me aside and said. Yeah, kind of, kind of be quiet about it. So, so I did, but, but I made a scene. I had, you know, the, the adverse reaction was, uh, uh, neurological. So I, I was always throwing up all the time. Like, like just before we go run five miles, I'll, I'll drink some water and, and that will come up. And so I couldn't stay hydrated or, or eat food. That will come up. <clears throat> and so, eventually you know they, they kind of made up an excuse for what it was and they gave me a surgery and i still had a neurological uh kind of response only the the surgery kept everything down but you know it, it was like uh i was getting getting hey, blackballed hey, like, hey, like I, you guys I know were. you said two minutes and you're probably at about six or seven and i'm sure that there's a, a wrap-up point on there but i wanted to try to figure out what it was because we're starting to run out of time on a, a couple of our people up here. So if you don't mind, kind of, kind of. I apologize. Uh, yeah. So, so, so they basically tried to silence me and, and I was getting stalked. Like, you know, I'd have black cars sitting out, out front of my house in the middle of the night with the, with the headlights on and, and that sort of stuff, you know? So, so I was getting blackballed too. So it's, it's been stuff like that. They've been trying to keep everything on the wraps for a while. Yeah. I hear you. Um, I know a lot of people have that experience. Um, sometimes it's just a ghost. We see those a lot when you have some training. Sometimes uh, it is not a ghost. Sometimes somebody is following you. Totally get it. Uh, Dark Knight, you've been coming on and off. Let's get you on, and then I'm going to pull. I'm going to drop some folks off, and we're going to bring up uh, anybody that wants to be up here. And oh. uh, I got a handful of them. Thank you for the opportunity to talk. I'm I'm a civil lawyer. I'm from the hinterlands. I, I practice in southern New Mexico and far west Texas. And kudos to whoever it was was talking about border patrol agents in this part of the world. I, I don't do criminal work, but I've encountered border patrol agents in court. I've also 
uh, know the lots of border patrol officials uh, through my social network. Uh, they're heroes, uh, and as is patriot who served his country as a marine. Here's my here's the thing I want to put in front of those of you who might know a congressman, okay, a Republican congressman. There is no reason in the world that the venue statute under uh, 28 U.S.C. shouldn't be changed to take political cases or cases that may touch on political rights and First Amendment rights that would ordinarily be heard in a D.C. district court and just automatically have them set to be heard in one of six or seven or a dozen congressional swing districts somewhere in the country far away from Washington, D.C., I began to have this concern after the when General Flynn was on trial, and I forget the name of his judge, a well-known judge. Sullivan. Sullivan. Judge Sullivan is, to me, the embodiment of everything that's wrong with the D.C. Circuit and, and at the trial court. I used to have con- – I'm a trial lawyer. I have great confidence and respect in trial judges. But what I've seen in the D.C. Circuit from trial judges, both in the General Flynn case and in these J6 cases, makes me sick. And the Congress, assuming we can, you know, that the Republicans can ever get a working majority in, in the Senate, should not post haste amend the venue statute to automatically direct, to give the defendant the option to move cases to any one of a designated set of districts where you have, you know, 50-50, you know, swing vote kind of locations i'm not looking for you know an advantage well, but look, just look give them a fair trial look what happened with rittenhouse because he was able to to, to that, have a fair trial bingo tracy that's exactly right you know jury nullification is an important part of our system and 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 we need to have that and people who are in this who have the the, the crosshairs on their back from the doj and the F, corrupt fbi need to have a chance to get in front of a judge who might actually follow the rules of evidence, follow the Constitution. And there's no reason if you don't, if you have the votes in Congress that this can't happen. So and I'd be love to hear what Shipwreck says about this. He's trying these cases. So that's all I had to say. Thank you all for giving us the forum and access to it. All right. Bear with me here for about four or five minutes, please. I wrote an article on this that was published in Human Events before I started doing these cases. I've probably been in the summer of... Uh, 2021 and um i've argued this point in change of venue motions in in the dc district here's here's the problem uh that that caller was was exactly correct that there's a venue statute that says that you know criminal offense shall be prosecuted in this district where the offense was committed the district of columbia is is in some respects, an accidental jurisdictional district. It's not a state. It is a 10-mile by 10-mile 10 10 federal city. Bingo. It is a governmental seat that exists for no other purpose than to be a governmental seat. The residents of the district, and I think the number is something over 50%, either are employees of the federal government or they work in enterprises that are directly interfaced with the federal government um the the government i wrote this is what the was the basis of my of my uh, human events article the government has no interest in the location of a criminal prosecution the citizens of the united states are being vindicated by the by the criminal prosecution that's who the government represents 
the citizens of all 50 states. There's, there is no governmental interest that says that only the residents of the District of Columbia should be viewed as the appropriate jury of peers for these offenders. And, and in fact, there's a very strong argument to be made that, that the residents of the District of Columbia in many ways were all victimized, either in significant ways or, or minor ways, but they were all victimized by the events of January 6th because the city was closed down. The city government imposed a curfew and told people to stay home under penalty of criminal citation if they were found out on the streets after 6 p.m. on the 6th. So, in, in, so their lives were disrupted, and 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 and, and, and so you're you're drawing from a juror pool that is almost entirely quasi victims of the offenders who are on trial. In addition. You are in the federal city of the sitting government that claims that it was the target of an insurrection. So, so you have the sitting government prosecuting allegedly members of the political opposition at a location where it's an objective, undeniable fact that 92% of the voters in that, that jurisdictional city favored the installation of the sitting government. So you have, in effect, one political point of view sitting in judgment on the other opposite, opposing political point of view to vindicate the interest of the government that they voted for. None of that produces anything that smells good. Now, here's the problem. In 1973, I think it was, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals issued an opinion in United States versus Haldeman out of Watergate that basically tells all the district judges that they are not to grant a motion to change venue without first trying to pick a jury. Oh, so far as I know, and I have been involved in a couple of change of venue cases, I've got one pending right now in the Ninth Circuit. The D.C. Circuit is the only circuit that's ever said that. There are cases in other parts of the country that get moved from one district to another based upon pretrial publicity without having to pick a jury or without having to try to pick a jury. You know, the district court judges go through the analysis, they look at the polling, they look at the media coverage, and they come to a judgment as to whether or not a defendant can get a fair trial or not get a fair trial before they try to pick a jury. And if they don't think a defendant can get a fair trial, they don't go through the, the senseless exercise of trying to pick a jury. They simply move the case to a different district. It happens, except it never happens in the District of Columbia, because in 1973, 50 years ago, the Circuit Court of Appeals told the district judges, well, you have to try to pick a jury first. Well, so the district judges are trying to pick a jury because that's what the that's what the Circuit Court of Appeals said they have to do until the Circuit Court of Appeals brings itself into the 21st century and the modern media age and how the juror pool consumes news and revisits its idiotic Haldeman decision. We're stuck with the circumstance we have. That's going to happen. One of these first three or four cases to go up on appeal 
Guy Reffitt's case, Timothy Hale Cusinelli's case. Uh, I can't remember the third one that actually went to a jury trial. Those cases had motions for change of venue. The Oath Keeper case had a motion for change of venue, and and it was a it, it had a published it had a survey that was conducted by a survey group, a scientific analysis of the voter pool and their prejudices and their biases, and the extent of the media coverage, and all they asked for. The only thing the first set of Oath Keeper defendants asked for was to move across the river eight miles to the Eastern District of Virginia. Eight miles. But what it would do, it would bring seven different counties in Virginia into the juror pool rather than one 10-mile by 10-mile urban area. And Judge Maida said no because Haldeman says he's got to try to pick a jury first. That's wild. Hey, Dark Knight, I, I know you had your spurs jangling in there and you were coming off mute. Do you want to – Do you want to? Uh follow up uh, with what Chip just said? Yeah, I, I appreciate what he's saying, and obviously the man knows the law, and kudos to, to him for excellent argument and understanding of law that I don't know, but that's my my point, is somebody, the Congress needs to fix it, and and, and this is something that, that people need to press the Republican Party on, because otherwise, there's never going to be any justice in D.C. I'll let you guys go. i got to finish dinner. Yeah, you know, the jacked up thing is it shouldn't be a political issue. It should be that Americans should get a fair trial, like like Ship was talking earlier, that the process should just be the goal. Like for the government, they're, they're, like it's not a win-loss thing. I think a lot of these uh, younger prosecutors are eyeing becoming a pro- prosecutor not as a, as a career, but maybe some of them are looking to, to move in defense work and make more money, and I don't have any beef with that. But uh, they shouldn't, you know, it should be based on doing a good job, and, you know, the cases that come in front of them should be fairly prosecuted. And they should they should be fairly unbiased about it. Like I never felt like I was incentivized to uh, to find somebody, you know, to find all the evidence that somebody was wrong. I just wanted to get the truth. And if we all do that, I know Steve has the same mindset. You know, when someone does something evil, and there are some really evil people out there that hurt people on the federal watch, particularly in the Indian uh, reservation type of prosecution. You know, it's like, man, let's let's go round up all that evidence. Let's put together a good case. But if the if the question is like maybe somebody did this, and the answer is maybe they didn't, uh, well, let's get enough information to actually not wreck their lives before we go forward and, and try to push a case. Um, well, I think you're obviously right, but whoever, I don't know who it was earlier, was talking about the hiring practices of the DOJ. I think the horse has been out of the barn on that for a few years. Yeah, I think you're correct. Uh, I'm like, Philip- uh, I, I, um, I, I, I mean, I was in the middle of that. It changed. It changed in the aftermath of the Gulf War. You had a very anti-war sentiment develop in the Ivy League law schools. The graduates from 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, they were just, I mean, you could see it with all the big law firms representing Guantanamo defendants and all of that stuff. And an ultra-liberal mindset came out of the Ivy League law schools and right into DOJ. I mean, just by the hundreds every year. There were you know new new law school graduates trying to get into DOJ, and it was a, it was a joke at the beginning of the Obama administration. It was a joke that like well you know you just you know, put ACLU and and the Sierra Club and all the other stuff on your resume and you'll get an interview. Well, let's you know the Constitution only applies if you you know have bona fides that you you hate this country at this point. And I hate to say that, but that's what it looks like from hinterlands. I'm gonna let you guys go. Thank you. Thanks for your questions, Dark Knight. That was uh, that was helpful. Um, Philip, your buddy was advocating. Ron was advocating for you to come up. I, I brought you on. Did you want to speak for a little bit and share something or talk to Ship about anything? 
Yeah, I got a lot of uh, important information to share, if that's all right. Yep, send it uh, with what you got, and then uh, if we got to curtail it, we'll we'll shut you down a little bit. But I, I think uh, I think you got a few moments to share it. Yeah. So, what shipwreck was saved by the FBI? I'll talk about the FBI, then I'll go into my experience of January sixth, which is huge. But with the FBI, shipwreck is is absolutely right. They pretend to be your friend, but they're not your friend. You know, because with my experience with January sixth, it exposes the Capitol Police. It expo- it completely derails derails the January 6th committee and the whole thing that they're trying to do with that, trying to make it seem like all these Capitol Police are heroes and all the Trump supporters are bad and it's all Donald Trump's fault. All I had to do was come forward and have my story heard and it'd be obvious that's not the case. You know, so what do they, what they do is is they try and shut me down. They try to get me thrown in prison, right? First, they put me on the no-fly list. That's what the feds did. Since they're talking about the FBI, they put me on the no-fly list and I had to be able to travel and stuff and there's certain jobs I'm trying to get. I can't get the jobs because I'm under federal investigation. I can't travel because I'm on the no-fly list. I'm like, well, hold on. They can't even tell me why I'm on the no-fly list. So I call my friend in Portland. I say, hey, uh, is there anything you can do? He said, I have an FBI contact here in Portland. Let me talk to him. So that, his FBI contact in Portland talks to FBI in Texas. So then two FBI agents come to my house. You know, they're acting all chummy like they're my friend and stuff. And they sit, you know, it's me and my dad and everything and my mom. You know, they act like, you know, friends and everything. And they talk about how, you know, their time in the military and how they're patriots and how the FBI isn't really bad. And we're not out to get Republicans. I'm like, yeah, I don't I don't I just told them to their face. I don't buy that bullshit. But um, I, I think you guys seem like good guys. Maybe I was wrong thinking all the FBI was bad, you know. And, I, and they asked me if I went to the Capitol. I said, no, I did not go into the Capitol. I did not break anything. I did not, you know, steal anything. I did not put my hands in any Capitol Police officers. I got trampled because of the Capitol Police did well before I could even try and do any of that stuff. You know, so they shake my hand. They say, don't worry about it. Investigation over. It'll all be cleared. But they lied because just a couple of weeks later, I get a call from Mindy Robinson. She's saying the FBI came to my house. They held up a picture of you on January 6th. They were asking me questions about you. And, you know, I get, you know, this type of crap from other people, too, saying, you know, the FBI came and they were asking questions. And then I get an email from Reddit saying that the federal government requested to see all my data from Reddit, meaning they were going through every single thing I've ever said in my life to try and find, you know, a statement of me saying that I was going to go into the Capitol building on January 6th because they wanted to throw me in prison to prevent me from talking about what actually happened, how the Capitol Police killed Roseanne Boylan, because they lied about Roseanne Boylan's cause of death. It was not a it was not an overdose. That's a lie. She's standing right next to me and she was A-OK. She was fine. It's the Capitol Police that gassed uh, that gassed all of us to the point we couldn't breathe. And we know we fall down and collapse. And they drench us with mace and they beat us and they shoot people point blank with rubber bullets, beating the living shit out of us. You know, they keep, you know, doing this for a long period of time. I'm at the bottom of this pile with Roseanne Boylan. She reaches out and she's hold, grasps my hand. She's holding my hand for a short amount of time. And we're getting crushed to death. And we're screaming for the Capitol Police to stop. And they keep beating and pushing people on top of us for minute after minute after minute after minute. You know, so like for two years, for two years straight, I try to get the truth out about that. But the only thing that's allowed to be heard is a bunch of lies. So like the people that are actually like killing me and that did kill Roseanne Boyland, like they get they get like all these special slots in MSNBC and CNN 
And, you know, they're presented at their White House as heroes and at all these football games as heroes. Like the police, the uh, Capitol Police woman that bashed in Roseanne Boylan's head with a baton when she was laying there dead still. They put a medal around her neck at like a Super Bowl game or a football game or some bullshit. You know, so like all it would take is me just coming forward and being able to simply say the truth. But they shut me out. You know, New York Times would not have me on. CNN, MSNBC would not have me on. They had me on a little podcast, you know, that's all they would have. But they would blast out the truth. You know, they blast out, you know, whatever they would want people to hear. But they wouldn't they want to blast out the truth. You know, they wouldn't like let me be on the panel to contest what these Capitol Police officers were saying, you know, because they here's the whole thing. Even during the impeachment hearing, they cut out the, the uh, footage of my body and Roseanne Boylan's body laying there on the ground. To make it look like cap, like to make it look like Trump supporters were charging at the Capitol police officers for no reason. Like I'll give you an example. So Eric Swalwell said, "Look at these Trump supporters attacking these Capitol police officers with these American flag poles." You know, and I'm like, "Well, hold on. You'll see that he used the uh, the footage from the New York Times, and Roseanne Boylan's body is, is laying on the ground in the footage, and my body's laying." down in the footage but he edited out our bodies and he lied to make it seem like trump supporters were just beating up the police for no reason no it's because hundreds of trump supporters were standing outside this tunnel way and they're hearing our screams and our cries for, like for help for them not to, for the capitol police not to kill us or people to, like drag us out and save us and they're just and they're screaming like what the fuck are you doing you know, so the Capitol Police, they keep pushing and pushing and beating people to the point that they're standing at the entrance of the tunnel. They're at the they're all the way back, all the way back. And they're pushing and beating people till they're at the very front of the tunnel, you know, to where everyone outside can see them. You know, that's when people, you know, grab them and drag down the uh, dude with a spiderweb tattoo on his neck. The guy he the guy that said, you know, Trump supporters attacked me for no reason or whatever. You know, there's the guy with spiderweb tattoo, spiderweb tattoo on his neck, and then there's the guy who uh, lied about getting called the N-word, and the guy who I really don't like who said, you know, uh, January 6th was worse than my entire tour in Iraq. So all the shitheads, you know, that are front and center of the, of the January 6th thing, they try to use to smear Trump supporters. The ones that have Twitter accounts that talk the most shit at Trump supporters, they were the ones in the front lines beating, beating the living shit out of us and killing us. You know, and they made themselves out to be victims when they're wearing full, they're wearing full body armor. There's not a single scratch on any of them. Meanwhile, I had to be carried away because of what they did. You know, they went so overboard. It's insane. I think the footage will, I think there's a, it just goes to show that's the reason why the 14,000 hours of footage or whatever you want to call it. That's the reason why they were hiding that shit, because these people are not heroes. I'm not going to go out and say they're absolute villains or anything, but here's the thing, bro. To call these people, like, heroes, they're beating the living shit out of people, you know, punching women in the face. I mean, it's all on video. and You, got, you guys are going to see it. But shit, dude, it's just crazy. For two years, uncontested, just, oh, they're heroes. Oh, you were great. Oh, you're a tragic victim. I'm like, bro, like, you fucking killed a woman, man. Like, she's holding my hand. Like, what are you talking about? All right. There it is. Listen, uh, like Philip, I've heard your story before, and I, I think that your your experience is probably very compelling. The, the problem is, is that you're, you're finding blame with things that I don't think necessarily exist. 
Um, the Bureau is not out there trying to hide stuff for the Capitol Police per se, as far as I can imagine. I imagine they're just doing the dumb thing that they normally do, which is they're doing what they're told. Uh, that is the evil in and of itself. It's a much more banal evil than than some sort of insidious full-scale government cover-up. It's usually more like idiocracy than it is like some sort of um, you know, some sort of group of people that are uh, getting after it. And um... somebody, so, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> anyway, it ends up being a lot more foolishness than it does like some master plan or some evil cabal that's doing this stuff. So not to not to minimize anything that you went through, and I understand how traumatic that can be. The, the sad thing was is this whole event should have been an NSSE. They should have had DHS uh, involved in all of it. DHS should have been out there, which is to say uh, Secret Service, should have been credentialing and running the whole, the whole uh, piece. Uh, there is a actual protocol where they bring out Capitol Police, they bring out the D.C. Metro Police, they bring out the riot squads. They put everybody in place so that all the resources are not hiding somewhere and waiting. They're ready to go where they need to be. And they handle riots and crowds and unexpected protests all the time in D.C., and, uh, and everybody gets involved and everybody knows where all the other assets are. And it's very safe for a lot of law enforcement. You don't see these things go down at, at big events. They do it every single year for State of the Union and for January, uh, for uh, July 4th, rather. Like whenever there's big crowds in D.C., they handle these things. This was either deliberately mismanaged or it was so painfully mismanaged that uh, there was a, a negative result. But that doesn't, you know, it can just as easily be foolishness. I think hopefully we see more. Um, I hope everybody wants to know what the actual truth was that came out because, what we what should have happened and what happened are not the same thing. And uh, and we don't have all the details yet. Uh, so nobody's going to say that you're being you know minimized at this point. I, I've, I've definitely heard you speak in other places. I hope you continue to do so. Um, I know it's something you're probably angry about. And I, I hope some of that goes away and you can just really hone in on, on what needs to be said, which is, you know, your personal experience of it and, and where things were done wrong. I'm going to bring up some other uh, speakers if possible. Joe, did you want to jump in at all? And uh, Mitt, you had your hand up next if Joe does want to speak. Joe doesn't want to speak. Mitt, you're up. Hey. Can you guys hear me? Yes, sir. Okay, fantastic. Listen, there's a lot going on about this. Uh, who was in charge? Who should have been there? Great points by Kyle about um, DHS, um, the Capitol Police, the Metro Police, whether the National Guard should have been there. But in any... Any federal, state, county, or local agency that institutes the um, IMF, they call it the emergency management system. The local agencies call it the ICS, the incident command system. Anybody that is involved in a large incident, it's a, it's a mandate. It's a mandate by the federal government that they have to employ this incident management system, this ICS in order to have accountability, in order to have uh, controlled functionality, in order to reduce the span of control. It's a system that every single safety officer in the nation is, is, is trained on. We spend hundreds of hours a year going over it and doing it and using it on everything from brush fires to hostage situations. It, it's, it's a standard throughout the country. Now, within this incident management system and this incident command system, there's something called an IAP. The IAP is an incident action plan. And whenever you go onto a large-scale incident or a very dangerous incident and you set up your incident management system, your incident command system, you have to, as quickly as possible, produce this IAP. 
And within the IAP, it's called an incident action plan. It gives everybody on that incident a complete diagram of what's going on, what frequencies are being used, who's the incident commander, who's the safety officer, what to do if, the different hazards that are present at this incident and what to do if you encounter one of those hazards. It's I'm going federal... to jump in just a little bit on what you're saying, too, because for D.C., it's actually more specific by executive order and statute. The uh, The National Special Security Event System, it's actually required to be run by DHS. They are the they are the owning agency. Secret Service does the credentialing for these types of things. And then there's literally blue force tracking on everybody in the field that is shared through uh, through a military command system called ATAC. Um, and so it, it's even more aggressive than that, that that uh, NIM system you're talking about or ICS. It's actually it's actually required in D.C. for these things. And the fact that it wasn't done is really where the atrocity is. I think that's why. So yes. Hurt. So it's, Under, it's even more aggressive why- than what you're talking about, which gets done everywhere, obviously. You should be able to see it. We should be able to read that. And the other thing that needs to get done is at the very end of this, when it's all over and done with, with, within a short period of time, if you want to, every agency wants to collect money back from the federal government. Everybody, every agency wants to be made whole on every penny they spent on any type of large incident. They, in order to do that, they have to submit an AAR, which is an after action report. You have to do it. If you don't submit this after action, report of what happened, what took place, how could we have done better, what else uh, went wrong. If you don't come up with a way to avoid the problems that you had and, and, and to get out of the situation, if you don't produce that report, you can't be made whole. You can't get funding back to your agency for the work that, the work done. The fact that they don't have an action is a real tell of you know what was going on with this whole Jan 6 thing. Every agency in the nation has to do one. And it's required mandate. Hey, so hey, that's all I Mitt, Mitt, let, me, let me jump in on this, Mitt. In my in my trial back in September, uh, Lieutenant, uh, I think it's Ronald Ortega of the United States Capitol Police took the stand to testify about all the security measures that were in place that day, and and how the perimeter had been set up, and how the Capitol Police, uh, what their manpower was, and how they drew on other agencies. You know, the whole he he was there to do all of that for the jury. Or actually, I take that back. This is a bench trial. So this is just for McFadden, Judge McFadden. And I didn't have this information in advance. I just opened, asked him a couple open questions. I said, so um, has has the Capitol Police done an after-action report of the incident on January 6th? And this is September of 2022. So we're 18 months after the event. And he said he was not aware of one. And I said, well, you're a captain in the Capitol oh, Police. How how many levels of management are there above you in the command? He said no. uh, two, two deputy deputy chief and the chief. I said uh, you're not aware of one. If one had been done, would you be aware of it? And he said yes. I said then my question is: Has one been done? And he said I'm not aware of one. Judge McFadden stopped him at that point because this is a bench trial. So there's no jury. Judge McFadden jumped in and said, "Are are you saying that the United States Capitol Police or the United States Congress has not?" investigated what procedures might have failed and how it might prevent this from happening in the future. Exactly. And, and caught him, just caught him completely flat footed. Now, fast forward. Captain Ronald Ortega testifies in the second Oathkeeper case that I'm in. And I asked him again. I said, you remember me asking you several months ago in another trial, whether or not an after action report had been done. And he says, yes, Mr. Shipley, I remember that. I said, that was September of 2021. It's now, 
December of 2020 or September 2022. It's now December of 2022. Has an after action report been done? We said, uh, well, we're gathering data. Right. 23 months later, they're gathering data. Impossible. They didn't, they didn't want to do one for political reasons. And we saw that play out with the January 6th committee. For political reasons in advance of the 2022 elections, they did not want to do one that would point the finger at the Democratic leadership in Congress and how they managed the security for the building that day, because that's where the fault lies. Yeah, it's that's you're exactly right. One hundred percent, Chip. So glad you pressed that guy with that question. I wish I could have seen his face, but that's exactly right. That that this after action report and this incident action plan, every agency in the United States is required to do it, except for this Bureau of uh, Go Get Coffee for the Congress People agency that seems to think that they're above it all. And there's no reason why the people who employ the House of Congress. They're our house, and they're in charge of that unit. Why can't we see these reports that are required by federal mandate to be done? One, because they weren't done, and you just stated why. But it slays me. And how me, this pity little-ass little guy down here in California, seems to have like thrown this out there and this after-action report. And you just don't see it floated around too, too much anywhere else. And nobody is really pressing the government on it. I'm, I'm just happy to hear you, you actually said it and got it on the record in a courtroom. That, that's just fantastic. But Kyle, there really is an effort to control the narrative on this. I've witnessed it for years. And I'm not saying that the FBI is a big evil army of stormtroopers, but the people pulling the levers behind the scenes, they're not. And I'm out. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I'm that's all I had on that, Dale. I hope somebody takes a bull by the horns that has the ability and the horsepower to, you know, to do something about it. Maybe a congressman sitting in here somewhere. I hope someone contacts him and, you know, really pushes it forward. Yep. Mitt, I appreciate it. I think it's a solid point, Philip. I understand what you're saying. I do think there is a media agenda that's going on. I think we're all witnessing that. Um, I want to jump over to Tyler. Just brought you up. Did you have something you wanted to add, bud? Well, I was just going back to what you were saying about the judiciary. Uh, you know, I was engaged in, in helping some uh, January 6th uh, defendants early on. And and as we were, you know, working with those coming up to just the bail hearings, you know, the, the, the federal, uh, you know, side would present, you know, 5,000 page worth of documents and it would be a five hour bail hearing. Um, and, you know, and, and our, uh, from our perspective, our, our federal, uh, attorneys with 30 plus years of experience, you know, submitted documents saying they've never had a defendant ever in their history be treated anything like this. And, and then, you know, we would have the, the judge, you know, come back and, and reprimand our attorneys and say, Hey, if you ever say anything, you'll be disbarred and, and, you know, you won't be, uh, in my courtroom any longer. Uh, so there was very much an agenda from the very beginning. Um, of all these uh, all these trials uh, that are occurring, I think uh, I mean I think that's why people like Ship have come out of essentially out of a retirement to come and step into a need, just so that people have a fair like a fairer at least attempt at uh, what our process is supposed to look like, which is supposed to be adversarial and it's supposed to be that you have a, a right to representation. And yeah, I think I that so many so many people have been running away from it. I don't know if Ship if you wanted to add anything to what uh, Tyler just said or if you had similar experiences with bail hearings and stuff. No, that, that's. I think that's it at all. Joe, I had you muted earlier. Did you want to jump on and do a um, 
do do say something because I'm sorry I didn't realize I had everything muted. No, you're fine, Brad. Thanks for that. Um, I was just gonna say, um, just uh, I just realized why you keep calling me Brad. <laughs> I laughed out loud sorry. when he said that. Um, he, said, he sent me he sent me like three text messages that said uh, something about Brad, and I'm like, there must be some movie reference I'm not getting. I forgot that the FBI changed my name to Bradley this morning. No, I was just gonna say in reference to the. Um, the, like you guys were touching on, you guys always talk about the points I was going to bring up, but just the planning of the, this whole, uh, the January 6th thing, um, the fact that they were, you know, they, it's like they were caught off guard, didn't have enough manpower. Um, like you said, Kyle, you know, they, they plan for that stuff, like, you know, with the inauguration and all that stuff, like there is an emergency type of plan in place that uh, they, they should have already had. And knowing that there's going to be uh, people coming to the Capitol that day, there's no reason that they could not have been prepared for all that and had bodies in place. So, I mean, I was, I spoke at the first hearing at the first uh, event, the first March that there was in November. And there were hundreds of thousands of people. We were, we were from freedom Plaza in on the stage all the way back to the Capitol on the streets. So knowing that that was what the first event was well attended, like there's zero reason why they wouldn't have anticipated the sixth being even bigger. Zero reason. Yeah, I guess. Joe, did you ever work NSSEs? Did you work any of those, like yeah, inaugurations was, um, or state of the union? Yeah, I worked. Um, I was actually partnered up with an SOG chick uh, woman. Uh, sorry, um, the, during the Trump inauguration, where it was like mayhem down there. So yeah, I was down there that day with like you know like it sounded like bombs were going off and stuff because it was chaos. Um, so yeah, I, I yeah, I was I was at the same thing. So we were both out there doing I team or whatever yep. it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was whatever out there the as partner well. surveillance. Yep. So I was out there doing that stuff. But um, yeah, I don't remember us being really allowed to do, go hands on or arrest anybody, which was pretty bizarre looking at it now. Do you know what I mean? Like just looking at the dynamics of how you know we were told to stand off that group or you know pretty much. Which even then I was kind of like well, that's weird. Um, I didn't really think anything of it because I was still kind of new to the FBI. But then seeing the other stuff play out where the other side. Um, is causing chaos or, you know, having a, you know, is there to, to protest. And then it was like all hands on or, you know, make arrest or whatever. So it was just a little, little weird, the, the picking and choosing even back then. Yeah. So people who don't know, Joe, Joe uh, was a, a police officer in Maryland, uh, joined the FBI, did two years, got, uh, he managed to resign before he was fired on his last day of probation for not wearing a jacket to court, which is why you get fired in the FBI is because some uh, punk little, you know, tiny uh, personality uh, feels infringed upon because they uh, they told you to wear a jacket uh, sort of like vaguely and then you didn't listen to them because they're not in charge of anything. And then uh, so he got he was uh, forced to resign the day before, went back to his local police. He's been doing law enforcement for, what, 12 years or more? Yeah, like 14 years. Essentially, it's like, you know, 14. finding a way to uh, try to get rid of you, like almost saying uh, improper conduct with police officer on body cam. You know what I mean? Like to just yeah. look for a reason yeah. to try to get rid of you. Um, so you're, t- you're too into my business. You know what's going on with me too much. Um, what, what's also interesting though is I had a, a similar experience on uh, on the inauguration for Trump. So on uh, January 20th of 2017, and I did a number of these NSSEs. I just want people to be aware of like they're very frequent. There, there's an entire squad at the Washington field office for the FBI that interfaces with secret service. Secret service has a whole command post that they, they, uh, you know, work with department of energy. They work with literally every law enforcement unit that is in the, uh, the national capital region, whether it be for mutual aid to call in, if there's more needs from the departments that are in the area. But, uh, we, we go out there and we we're out there in the crowds. We're watching things. We're calling in, um, 
you know, actual hands-on units if need be. I actually had to call and get permission from Secret Service um, command post to actually go hands-on with a guy who was shining a, a, a laser, a green laser, into the U.S. Park Police helicopter. Park Police is out there. They've got all their officers that are either riding around overtly or flying around in the helicopter with the medics and everything. I mean, it is a big undertaking, and it happens all the time. It's a regular event. So the idea that you would not call an event like that, like Tracy says, when you had something that you knew was going to be a big deal, it doesn't have to be like, it's not because there's an emergency. It's just because it's smart. It's, it's, it's how DC does business. You know, they have regular protests of tons of people on a regular basis, and they want to make sure that they don't get out of hand so that everybody can do the thing they want to do and that everybody can exercise their First Amendment constitutionally protected rights. That's the whole point of what the government's supposed to do. It's supposed to, you know, allow us to have uh, the ability to, to to exercise our rights. It's not supposed to stop us from doing things. And generally speaking, that, that mechanism works pretty decently. Um, it's just amazing how badly it failed on January 6th. And like I said, I don't know if it was because of malfeasance or just because of, uh, you know, just some sort of mistake. But um, I do hope we get to the end of the or to the bottom of it. I'm going to try and bring up some more speakers. So stand by, folks. We added uh, America first. I'm just going to go in order that they're in the, on my list. So America first, you should get a mic here shortly. And let me know when you're up. America first, you're up whenever you're ready. Hey, my name's James Brett. I'm a J6 defendant. Um, like Philip, uh, I was in the tunnel. Um, my question is more specifically um, to Shipwrecked, and I'll get to, to that question in a minute. But one thing that I want to reiterate, uh, Kyle, you said about the FBI uh, agents. Um, I'm going to reiterate what you said. Um, I don't think there's any big uh, – Big uh, cabal running it, um, at least on the uh, on the ground level. The agents that came to my house and raided my house on a pre-dawn raid um, afterwards, it was um, overwhelmingly, I heard from these agents, look, we don't want to do this. Um, one guy came up and thanked me for being a gentleman because I'd, I'd, I was raised better. Yes, sir. No, sir. Uh, follow follow the order of the uh, law enforcement in front of me uh, so that I don't put my family or myself in jeopardy or any of them and get through it as peacefully and as quickly as possible. Um, that's how I was raised. Um, these, these guys were professionals. They did their job well. They executed an arrest warrant. Um, I won't say they affected it properly with, uh, with how it was done before the, uh, with the arresting agency being the, the locals, but that's a whole nother story. Um, so I, I'll give kudos where kudos are due. Um, they did what they had to do, but it, it wasn't the horror stories that I hear a lot. Um, the one thing that I, I want to ask for shipwreck, um, I'm bringing an offered a, a, a plea deal and I won't get into it too much. Um, I can't talk about my discovery but I can talk about the fact I'm being offered a plea deal. Um, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to take this thing. And as a result, he's threatening, uh, the prosecuting attorney is now threatening with a superseding indictment, um, a simple assault to stack on another charge. If I don't accept the plea offer now, I'm sorry, but man, this just feels wrong. It doesn't feel right on any level. You know, if it was a valid charge, why didn't I get it up front? And this is something, I mean, I've got five kids and I'm going looking at, uh, you know, seven and a half years max to now 
15 and a half. And it's, um, it's, it's worrisome at, at, at the very least. So my question is, uh, it, is this something that's really going on a lot? And is there any recourse? I mean, my, my public defender won't even request a conference with the judge and the prosecuting attorney to discuss this. Well, the, the judge is not in, it's in the federal system. The judges are not involved in plea discussions. That's that's an explicit uh, provision in the law. They do not um, uh, participate. That's purely between the two sides and any agreement they reach is not binding on the court. Um, I, I don't want to offer you any legal advice about your offer because I don't know anything about your case. And, you, you know, you are represented, so that wouldn't be. Uh, 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 correct. You want to reach out to me offline. Um, you can, you can, uh, you know, I, I, I'll talk to you as sort of, uh, oh, I, you know, I, a I get what opinion. you're saying. I, I get second. what you're saying. I guess my, my, my thing is the strong arming tactic. If you don't accept a plea deal, I, I don't even want to get into the specifics of mine, just a strong army. Is yeah, that but, a well, tactic? But, but if, it, it happens generally, and it's not necessarily a frowned upon practice because essentially what the government saying is, look, if you want to go to trial, that's fine. You have the right to a trial. We're conducting lots of trials. If you want to go to a trial, we'll accommodate you and go to a trial. But if you go to a trial, we're going to have all of the charges at a trial. Plea agreement, you know, you've got a initial indictment is not necessarily everything. And they're offering you a plea to, you know, one or two counts in the charge, in the, in the indictment that's already been filed. And they're saying, if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to make a deal with us, and that's fine, that's your right, then if you want to go to trial, we're going to go to trial on everything we have. Well, here's here's the thing. So I had four counts, civil disorder, two counts of disorderly conduct, and then entering and remaining. Um, they were They were looking for civil disorder. They were going to drop three. Now they're going to have five charges on me instead of the original four. And it just does not feel right to, to add another charge oh, they're, they're gonna, ever they're, there. They're, they're going to add a 111A count, which is an assault count, a simple assault count, no injury, no weapon. Um, it's, a, it's a second felony. It goes along with the first felony, which is the, the civil disorder count. That is a felony. It's the most minor felony that exists in federal law. The simple assault count is a very minor felony, but it essentially gives the jury two options for felonies. Uh, at the end of the day, and, and your lawyer can explain it to you if you want to contact me, I'll explain it to you. At the end of the day, it's not really going to change the outcome if you're convicted, whether they have one or both counts. The sentence will, well, it, it does change the outcome a little bit. The sentencing guideline range on the on the simple assault is a little bit higher than the civil disorder, but not much. So, but, okay. but you contact me, you can, you can get me on my, on my homepage on Twitter. You can see how to contact me and uh, I'll, I'll chat, I'll chat with you about it. Then the, the other thing that I, I have to say real quick, um, you know, there's so many things that went wrong that day, but when you look at SOP, uh, shooting rubber bullets from an elevated position, which is at head level, not, it's not SOP, uh, shooting flashbangs, uh, closer than 40 meters, not, not SOP. There was you know, so America first. Wrong. And I was at the bottom of that pile, dude, and I felt all that I know. this warm liquid. I was at the mouth of the tunnel, buddy. Things. I, I guess thought it was you. blood, dude. I thought people were getting shot with real yeah. bullets. I, 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 I had the uh, distinct pleasure of dealing with uh, what's his name, Bagshaw, and it was a, uh, it was a horrible experience. Got pushed down the steps, um, batoned in the side of the rib, and it, it was horrible, but. 
that aside, now now we're presented with legal options, and uh, I just hope, hope that our justice system can uh, stay the course. Yeah, I think it's telling that a lot of these spaces end up being uh, folks coming in and telling J6 stories. And uh, from somebody who was on, obviously, you know, I, I lived in D.C. at the time. I was actually on leave at the time. I saw cops who were responding to it that were training with me on the day of. And there's something really wild about the disconnect with the way that the government handled it versus what I saw for, for all of 2020, which was a really um, it was an eye opening experience in unpreparedness. Um, on the, on behalf of federal law enforcement. And, and, you know, I went to a number of places, whether it was in, uh, in Portland or whether what we saw what was going on in DC. And, um, and then I saw a bunch of other cases that happened during sort of the COVID lockdowns as well. But it's just, it's really bizarre to, to think about how aggressive it got pushed. I'm sad that it's something as partisan. Like, I think we could all agree that people that were, that were slamming cops around, if you were getting into a fist fight with a cop, like you probably picked the wrong battle. But, uh, people that were there to try to voice their, you know, their, um, their first amendment rights. I, I just, I just struggle to see how any of this stuff was just, and I, I don't understand how people who, who are like, you know, crucify all these people. I don't understand where that comes from. It's just a, it's a bloodthirstiness. It goes along with the people that want to get selected for these jury pools as well, because they want to be part of the justice that gets meted out because, you know, they're, they're fighting for their team. And it's like, I just, I really miss the time when, when I was growing up when there was actually one team and it was all in this country. Uh, I don't know if we've lost. Tracy, are you still with me? Have we lost I, you? Somewhere? I am. I'm very, very quiet. I have 20 minutes and that's it for the rest of the space. So we can do another 20. Yeah. So I'm going to bring on, um, I'm going to let Sean go first and then uh, uh, and A for justice. I see you. If anybody that's on the speaker panel is, is done speaking and they want to put the hand up, I'll drop you guys off. If you don't know how to drop off, I'll bring on the last couple and we'll try to wrap up this last few minutes here with Tracy. Yeah, and, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I'm going to head up. I got some work to do. So it's nice talk, everybody. And I hope to participate if we have another one of these soon. Hey, Ship, thanks so much for uh, for jumping in here. And for I know people really love having access to the information you have. So you're a good man for what you're doing. All right. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Uh, Sean, you're up. Yeah, Kyle, thanks for giving me the mic. Uh, thanks for hosting the space, Tara, Tracy, and everybody else. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, I was recently sentenced. I was at the Capitol as a journalist, and I've already kind of gone ad nauseum explaining the ways in which I, you know, I feel as though I, you know, had a breach of my own objectivity that day in that situation which is really what led to me taking a plea deal and uh, pleading guilty to a class B misdemeanor of picketing and parading. But something that I actually reported based off of sources that I had, and I reported this maybe two weeks afterwards, as I recall on my little humble podcast, um, there was multiple operations. There was multiple things going on that day. Not all of them were good. There was instigation. And interestingly enough, I believe it was just in September when this was actually FOIA'd. But on December 30th, 2020, the Secret Service provided intelligence to the U.S. Capitol Police and other agencies regarding threats being made by a member of the Voroshoff Division. And for those of you that don't know, the Voroshoff Division is tied with Ukraine. And as of, as of right now, nothing I've been able to find suggests that a single member of that group has been arrested, charged, or investigated. On January 5th, 2021, a special agent with the Secret Service Joint Terrorism Task Force provided crucial intelligence 
that said a concerned citizen reported that redacted and redacted were flying into BWI to attend tomorrow's rally and incite violence. And in these, and in these documents that were FOIA'd, what it shows is that they were 100% uh, trying to goad Trump supporters into going into the Capitol. That's their words. Now, interestingly enough, the organization that originally obtained this information through FOIA uh, said that none of this was taken seriously by the United States Secret Service. And they detailed the ways in which Secret Service failed to respond to threats ahead of the January 6th insurrection. That's their words. Should be noted that the intelligence was shared with all appropriate D.C. law enforcement agencies well ahead of January 6th. Like I say, it was on December 30th that they were made aware of this. And and then somewhat funny, it's it's that they pursued disqualification of Trump, this same organization that foiled this. They're called Crew. The Crew Board of Direction, Directors is chaired by none other than Clinton White House Counsel Beth Nolan. So I think it's interesting that all of this stuff can be tied back to a neo-Nazi group that has ties to Ukraine and everything else that we're seeing right now come out. Um, NBC has recently started reporting on this, and I know Ryan Riley, he and I have kind of gone around and around following each other. You know, I got to say to Ryan, you know, thanks for never being uh, as cruel to me as he has been to other J6ers, and I think there's reasons for that. Um, I recently got the transcripts from my sentencing hearing, and so I'm going to be sharing those with the public as well. But I think in the entire sphere of this, we've got to understand that there was there was multiple things that went wrong that day. And, you know, D.C. Metro has a garbage history. Uh, they, they do not have a good history of dealing with anyone. You know, they've cost millions and millions of dollars to the city, and this is over the course of at least a decade. Trennis Evans is in here, and I can let him fire off here. And, and you know, Randy knows this well with all his work with A for Justice. Um, but, you know, we recently put out an article at condemnedusa.com that really lays into this legacy of brutality of the D.C. Metro Police. And and a lot of my work, again, we're going to keep digging into this. All of this stuff that's come out about Voorhees Shoft Division is huge. It's massive. And it's my understanding from my sources that the names are known, the redacted names. They know who these individuals are. And I'm not going to get into a lot of speculation as to why those names have been redacted. But I think in the entire sphere, this is something major that has to be reported. And so I've done that. I've dropped it in the comments if people want to check that out and look at that. Um, and, and I could go off and tell all kinds of stories about my coverage of BLM and everything else during the summer 2020. But for now, I'll just, I'll leave it at that and encourage people to follow my work if they've not heard of me. Thanks, Sean. Uh, I do agree with you that there's some serious difficulties with DC Metro PD. It's one of the weirdest, um, it's one of the weirdest agencies. Like I've worked with local law enforcement in a lot of different places. And when I had a buddy who had an issue with, uh, with DC Metro and, and it was a really dumb issue, it was really dangerous on their behalf, uh, probably opened them up to some serious criminal liability. And when I called around all my buddies that worked with uh, task force officers, they said they couldn't think of a single person who wasn't too lazy to call or too corrupt. And that's a really big problem when you're when the people that you trust don't trust anybody in the local law enforcement they work with there. The reputation is not good. That's not to say that there's not some good folks there. I know people that are former D.C. Metro guys that were decent human beings and uh, they had a really you know good reputation. They worked in the FBI and they've worked in other law enforcement. They've left and gone somewhere else. But they'll actually hire people with a freaking felony on their record, which is pretty much the only place I've ever heard of. But that is starting to become. Um, introduced into local law enforcement in this country because of some of the policies that have been pushed because you can't get people 
uh, that are qualified applicants, whether it be because of drugs or whether because of things that they made a mistake. Like, I get it if you're a juvenile, but man, the idea that you've got a felony on your record is generally a disqualifier in law enforcement, and that is not a disqualifier for DC Metro. That is bizarre beyond belief for most of us. I think Joe and, uh, and Steve and I would, would all have that same experience. Um, I don't want to, you know, just keep running on it. Uh, A for justice. You said, I think it was Randy. If you want to jump up next, you're, uh, you're on it and, uh, jump on the mic. Yes. Thank you so much, um, for having me on. And, um, I, I just wanted to pose a question to you. I'm in DC. I've been in DC since August 1st, had the privilege to um, be standing with Mickey Whithoff to Ashley Babbitt's mom. We've had held a vigil outside the DC jail every single night. Since then, um, you know, not only are we at the vigil at the D.C. jail, but we're also in the courtroom, you know, as much as we can be witnessing and, and, and being there to, for a lot of the J6 trials. And over the last week, week, uh, week and a half or so, we've started to go into Capitol Hill, introduce ourselves to a lot of the Congress staff, um, Congress members themselves. And my question to you is, you know, especially with a lot of the FBI whistleblowers, and really what I think we need is is more DOJ whistleblowers. You know what I mean? Some of these, some of these lawyers that they know what, what's going on in these courtrooms. They know the, the blatant bias that's going on in a lot of these trials. And it's like, I'm just wondering, you know, being in D.C. and being in, on the front lines of this fight, where do you see... You know, our resources and our energies best being used. Yeah, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I do agree with you on the DOJ whistleblower part. There's plenty of people within DOJ that know that there are problems. Uh, there's a reason why main justice is is an issue. I'll let uh, I'll let George speak about it as well because he's got a lot more experience with it. But I had no no love for uh, for big justice. So, so real quick on, on main on, on justice, not just main justice in D.C., but around the country, or at least in, in Boston and then speaking with other colleagues and other offices, is that you go along to get along because they will go after you and and disbar you um, if you choose to leave. So it's very common um, to see like about a 50 percent turnover rate. Uh, in some of these uh, offices. And I saw uh, one of the AUSAs, assistant U.S. attorneys, a woman who I have so much respect for, worked very closely with on many CT and CI cases, counterterrorism and counterintelligence cases, basically driven out um, for not towing the company line. And uh, it was amazing that she was able to hold on to um, her license to practice law. So they play for keeps. So there you go. I mean, it, it, a lot of times I think we're we're seeing this persecution and, and, and other fears. I've got um, I know uh, Shane's down in there and, and we have a mutual friend who's a doctor in Texas. They're going after his license because he wasn't enforcing a mask mandate um, within his office. The, the kind of the thing when they start coming after people's livelihood and, and don't get me wrong, I know all about it. And so does Steve. Um, you know, you're talking about people that are basically putting your family at risk of, of being you know thrown out of your house or losing your mortgage or whatever it may be. That's uh, that's not an easy game for most people to look down the barrel of, and um, and if you're not prepared to to really cinch your belt and 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 you know get get in the ring and, and play for keeps the same way, then people aren't willing to step up. And most Americans, we found, I think we saw that in 2020. This country is not the country that we that many people maybe thought it was. I think a lot of people thought they were one thing, 
And uh, maybe people should realize that they are not that thing, but they can correct that anytime they choose. The uh, If you haven't drawn that line in the sand where you're not willing to, to backpedal beyond, uh, maybe it's time to look down and see where that line is. And if you're past it, maybe you could find a way back. It's it's very difficult once you've given up a lot of ground. But um, I, I don't think as many people, I, you know, I've got some, some boomer type uh, uncles and, you know, the, they were probably the original forwarding chains on the AOL right wing message chains that would send me all the, you know, send this or your, or your, your hair is going to all fall out crap. Um, and they've been doing it since I was a kid and um, they're big blowhards. They've got a lot of big bluster and they talk a big game. Uh, but when it comes down to it, you know, they got shots and they got, they had surgeries and they didn't want to do it, but they did what they were told and they wore masks to, to do things and they didn't, you know, get contempt of court charges. And I don't know what the right answer is. I'm just saying like they didn't hold to their own, their own lines. And a lot of us, are looking around going like, man, it's just, there's, there's not very many of us just standing here that didn't want to give any ground. I'll let Steve jump in because I know he's chomping there. Yeah. I mean, the, the, if you're going to be in DC, um, I'm thinking that, you know, and you have the ear of anybody that's in Congress, um, I, I think it would be a productive on your part to, to reach out and, and make sure that they're actually following through on the, on the right things with this new uh, subcommittee that's going on with the weaponization of federal government against the American people. Um, I know they announced their, their first four witnesses. They're going to be coming out on Thursday. Um, not impressive. Um, they, they, I, I was saying that I think that their sum total of preparation is uh, they just watched, watched Fox News primetime and uh, think that they're good to go. So I, I don't think they're taking this seriously. I don't think that they're, they're feeling the heat from people. Uh, I think that they just think, well, if it's good enough for, you know, the, the 8 p.m. slot for four minutes, then uh, then then job is done. But I think we need we need to make our voices heard with with those people on that committee. I don't think that they're staffed up properly, um, but I do think that they are uh, into retail politics. And if they are hearing a loud um, voice saying that, you know, what they should be focusing on and they need to prioritize Things like I, January sixth, then then uh, I, that's where they're gonna go. I agree. I I agree one hundred percent with everything you just said. The one thing I will say is, you know, we've actually had some meetings behind the scenes with some of those on that that select committee. So it's like there is a lot of information, a lot of truth that they need to be educated on. It's one of the things that we're considering, you know, to be our mission in a lot of this. So it may start out slow, but I don't think it's going to end slow. There's, there is a lot of support kind of behind the scenes. So well, it'll be interesting a venue to change see. option. Um, Randy, unless there's a venue change, there's not going to be fair trials in DC. Everyone's seen that so far. We know that because we've been watching them. It's Absolutely. Not, it's a soft Absolutely. Seat for the government, it's the reason why they charge there. EDVA in Virginia is a soft seat. And so is the Southern district in New York. There's three really good districts to charge. If you want to, uh, you know, just have it go your way for the federal government that's very easily charged and easily won. And unfortunately those are the ones. And, um, you know, all these J six defendants are in one that I, I would just say, just move them anywhere. Like honestly move them anywhere outside of those three districts and give them a shot at having a fair hearing with the jury of their peers. But we're not seeing that. And the judges are defending it. And, and I think if you listened earlier, you heard shipwreck crew explain the, uh, the circuit court decision that's actually governing that. And, and you know, unless Congress can step in and, and, and pass something specifically, then uh, they're going to be in a rough spot. Uh, we're going to wrap up in just a few seconds yep. here, so I want to give uh, Tresnus Adams a chance to go. Uh, your hand's been up a couple times, and um, Tracy, does that sound good? Yeah, I just wanted to say there have been 77 letters sent by Jim Jordan or one member of the judiciary on the House side to the DOJ or the FBI in the past 
year and a half or so, zero of them have been answered with any specificity or substance whatsoever. So, you know, great subpoena, great have a bunch of witnesses that can be on Fox News later on in the night for sound bites. But you guys have to understand who wrote the report. There's a report that came out about the, you know, government abuses, especially it was basically a whistleblower report. It was really well done for the most part. Likely the staffers wrote that. So whoever those overworked staffers are, somebody send them pizzas and get them Starbucks or like get them a gift card or something so they can go have a drink. Whatever you need to do to get the right questions out of those guys during those hearings, please, please do it. That's all. Cool. Hey, Kyle, can I go? Uh, we um, were going to have uh, Tresnus Adams go and then. Okay. Amanda, yeah, uh, yeah, Adam or, or Trennis? Trennis. Sorry. Trennis. Okay. Okay. Go ahead, Trennis. Hey, guys. How are you? Thanks for inviting me in to speak for a moment. Just uh, to not, let's be hasty here in the end of the speech. So I will be there Thursday speaking with a committee. Um, investigative group working on this and that is the problem they they've recognized the problem that they don't know what they're investigating and they've started to seek out the people that do know what they're investigating and so you think of it in these terms they've got a hundred boxes full of information somebody reads a statement they don't know if the statement's true or categorically false or a lie or misleading or what have you and that's why you have to have the people like uh, myself or David, Sean, you know, Randy's been a part of so many of these people that have been investigating this matter for two full years and that know the material. I, I still know haven't the gotten evidence. a phone call, and I probably know it better than anybody on this planet. I'll challenge that, but okay. Anyway, so moving on. I no, no disrespect, Tracy, but I've spent two years of my life of 15 to 18 hours a day seven days a week doing nothing but January 6th investigation. Oh, I don't so, mean the January 6th. I'm talking about the um, whistleblower stuff and all of the FBI oh, now that, that's, and... that's not my realm. God bless you for that work. Hey, listen, you know, Tracy, you and I should meet. I'm going to be in D.C. on Thursday. I'll be there Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'm not sure when I'm leaving, but I'll at least be there that long. Are you in, D- are you in D.C.? I'm not. Thank goodness I'm not. Um, we were on okay. two different wavelengths, sir. Continue. I apologize. Sorry. I apologize. I was thinking, you know, I'm I have uh, I, have, I haven't met very many people that can rival the January sixth knowledge. So um, I respect you. So no disrespect in there. So I appreciate different wavelength. Anyway, moving forward, uh, the information that I intend to provide them is under, and I'm willing to make this testimony under oath. I'm looking forward to that opportunity. Uh, we have compiled a massive data dump. I'm going to be delivering a brief to them. We're going to leave white paper for them. There's so many different things that are happening. There are facts that are going to be flushed out. We have the information of categorically false and misleading lies, uh, statements, testimonies, all compiled and put together in a meaningful way. I think it's very important that any of you, Randy, I know you're, you know, very poignant fella, Sean, so many people here. I think it's important that you remember when you deliver contest, and I don't speaking specifically to you, but anyone else that's going in. You have to stay fact-based. If you can't prove it, don't say it, and that's where you have to be. If you want to make a note of something kind of at the aftermath of gaining credibility for the absolute facts that you can show, whether it be by video evidence, statement, what have you, on the record matters, then that's great. But if you have something else to add, make a note and say, this is what we know, this is what we know at the other end, and here's the gap in the middle, and they may be able to use their type of resources, the things that we don't have available to us, kind of like what Sean's talking about. And I, I agree with Sean almost on everything he said. Um, 
I think that we can't blame the entire event. I think that you have to blame some part or even uh, on of that event on that. It's not the entirety of the event on whatever bad actors or individual forces or whatever those other individuals were. But aside from that, when we get into the facts and the meat of January 6th, there are people out there that have information. And if they would come forward, and this is kind of what we're going to do, we're going to open a door. We're going to paint some of these truths. And I'm going to be releasing some of what I'm doing, what I can release publicly. There's much of what, unfortunately, it'll be under seal that I won't be able to release. But hopefully that will be the job of the committee to do that. And if they say they truly want the American people to know the facts of January 6th, then they will release those that information. You don't release the 14,000 hours, that's another story. I'm not going to get into that. It's not my lane. But what I will say is if you were to release the information to the American public that is absolutely indisputable, the proof and facts of the matter, that alone should shake up this country enough to people to say, no, wait just a minute here. This is not quite what should be in, in this country. Um, as far as change of venue goes, all of you that know me know that we've done as much or more on change of venue than anybody in the country when it relates to January 6th. We have absolute indisputable data sets and proof that represent 82% of the country with a digital device and what they've done, how they've searched, what they put into their browser. And we've provided this information. It's being filed in dozens of cases. It's already filed in several now, and it's continuing to be filed. We're waiting and looking forward to that. We have subject matter experts. I put together that data with USA. We do intend to see that change, and this is where I think that the House Judiciary Committee, the Weaponization Committee, the J6 Committee, any of these committees have relevance to lean into this situation and lean over essentially the judge and say, hey, what are we doing here? We're now a member of the committee in the House Judiciary Committee with oversight into the federal district court system certainly can lean in there and say, hey, we're looking at this. What's going on here? This data is here. The proof is here. What are you doing about this and how are you going to have the fair trials? But I do have a little bit of a bombshell for them on Thursday. They're not expecting, and I'll be releasing that when I come out of the Congress on Thursday evening. Thanks for letting me speak. Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, I want to get to one more. I know Tracy told me we're going to have to drop off here pretty soon. Uh, the contrarian report, uh, mostly because I love the word contrarian. All my siblings are contrarian, so go ahead and send it. What do you <laughs> hey. got? Hey, hey guys, uh, good evening. Uh, appreciate the time. Tracy, uh, thanks for everything you do. And Tara, um, always pop in your room, super fire. Quick question, right? Has anyone in this room been able to watch Robert Malone's video on the fifth generation warfare and sovereignty? Or Kyle, have you, or Tara, or Tracy, have you guys watched Have I seen it? Robert Malone's video on it? It's my second retweet on my profile, like just to give background to this. I'm not trying to like uh, twist or, or sway off the topic, but I just watched this the other day and I'm just wondering, is the FBI, you being in the FBI or anybody in this room, like, is there like knowledge of how certain uh, information and narratives are packaged through the media that's designed to interrupt people's like OODA loops? That might be a, a George question. I mean, there is no question that there is fifth generation warfare that is being undertaken everybody can kind of feel what that is uh, yeah. i would say that people have to get educated on what it is to be able to have a good conversation about it okay so, flynn just put out a book on it too and i just that's correct yeah that, that's what i would say is like if you want to go <laughs> see stuff about it there's plenty okay. of resources for people to read um, okay you know, the, the thing about it is is you, you have to be educated it's it's kind of a nuanced topic so yeah in the last two minutes of our of our space, yeah yeah yeah. i know it's horrible it's probably but you a little bit too heavy to dive in i know crazy <laughs> did a whole thing on it 
Um, okay. You can probably find that recording done. I think it's worth looking to, like you say, Flynn does cool, a great cool. job. There's um, okay, guys. Look, thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much, and uh, God bless you guys. Later. Ciao. All right. So much. Yeah. Thanks so much for being in there, folks. I appreciate everybody being here. I'm gonna go jump in and make sure my kids get to sleep. Uh, thanks all the panelists on there. <laughs> Tara, I don't know if Terrible got uh, she got silenced the whole way through. If she got glitched out, maybe uh, she upset Elon or something because she's been in the co-host, but she told me she couldn't speak the whole time. But uh, well done, all the things. I appreciate everybody being pretty tight on these uh, the conversation on there and, and being reasonable to it. Thanks, everybody, for joining in. We'll do it again. And, Tracy, you're the best. I know she said she had to drop off, so we're going to close this sucker down. And-